0: Lucifer Means Lightbringer presents A special joint
1: podcast The mythical astronomy of ice and fire And
0: the history of Westeros The great empire of the dawn
2: In ancient days, the god-emperors of Yi Ti were as powerful as any ruler on Earth, with wealth that exceeded even that of Valyria at its height and armies of almost unimaginable size. In the beginning, the priestly scribes of Yin declare, all the land between the bones and the freezing desert called the Grey Waste, from the Shivering Sea to the Jade Sea, including even the Great and Holy Isle of Lang, formed a single realm ruled by the god on Earth, the only begotten son of the Lion of Night and Maiden Maid of Light who traveled about his domains in a palanquin carved from a single pearl and carried by a hundred queens, his wives. For 10,000 years, the great Empire of the Dawn flourished in peace and plenty under the god on Earth, until at last he ascended to the stars to join his forebears. From the very last pages of the World of Ice and Fire comes this epic and grandiose tale of a great Dawn Age civilization in far eastern Essos. Although this legend is disguised as a Yitish origin story, there's a good reason to believe it's quite a bit more than that. As with so many topics covered in the past, related to backstory, setting, history, etc., it's a matter of gathering all the appropriately related details throughout all the source material and putting it all together. Quite often, it's like discovering a story within the story.
3: And that's exactly what we're dealing with here, an ancient civilization with direct ties to many central mysteries in A Song of Ice and Fire, and not the small scale ones, the large scale ones. We're not talking about who wrote a certain letter we're wondering who the harpy is. We're getting into the long night, dragons, and bonding with them. Magic swords, strange black stones, and the ancestors of not just major houses, but entire races, not all of whom are entirely human. We'll even propose a possible mechanism by which the story of Azor High and Lightbringer, ancient legends from the Far East, directly connect to the certain uh, famous events in ancient Westeros, shall we say. To do this, we have to not only go far into the past, we have to also go far to the east, past the smoking ruins of Valyria, past Slaver's Bay, past Carth and the Dothraki Sea, past even the Bones Mountains, to a place with a name as epic as this lead-in is making it out to be, <laughs> the Great Empire of the Dawn. Yeah, hello and welcome to a joint episode, a history of Westeros meets mythical
2: astronomy of ice and fire. Most of you have already met Lucifer Means Lightbringer, a.k.a. LML, through our Dane and Ashai episodes, if not his own show. Uh, Good opportunity
3: to plug that right here. Oh, an opportunity. Yes. Well, (laughs) it's not much to say. It's called The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. You can find it at lucifermeanslightbringer.com, or you can look it up on iTunes. And I would be very happy to have you lend me your ears.
2: While working on said Dane episodes, these connections and other related topics revolving around the ultra-ancient history unearthed just too much to be ignored. But it also became clear that it was too large of a topic to include much of. So here we are, a couple episodes later, several really, playing fantasy archaeologist. Uh, I like to use, well, really I love to use the word hybrid, and it describes this episode quite well. And I'm going to get to use it a lot here, so that's fun. In this hybrid episode, we'll be chatting about hybrid people, hybrid bloodlines, hybrid architecture, hybrid cultures, hybrid magic even. The episode itself gets that designation because of its joint nature. It's hybrid mythical astronomy meets history of Westeros style, so hybrid everywhere. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of tinfoil, we want to stay firmly rooted in the text because there's actually plenty of material to draw from without much additional speculation. Before we get started, a few people to thank. Michael Klarfeld of Claradox.de, of course, is responsible for all of our animations. Ashea is our video editor and will be participating in this episode. She's just not here at the beginning, but she'll be here soon. Also, thanks to Martin Lewis. Check him out on Echoes of Ice and Fire on Facebook. He has done quite a few of the voices for this episode. He's debuting on History of Westeros, so we're very happy about that.
3: And, of course, we'd like to thank all of our Patreon supporters who make this sort of two-hour and 45-minute podcast possible. We sure are grateful, and we hope you enjoy this joining of the podcasting forces. A special shout-out to Dire Liz, who somehow managed to be the Alpha patron for both of our podcasts, and to all of our other generous and supportive patrons. Thanks, guys. One more piece of news directly related to this episode. This
2: episode generated so much discussion between us and so many subtopics that we didn't have room for. Plus, it's just a wide open episode with lots of topics and possibilities. So we thought it appropriate to have our next Q&A episode be based around this episode and Ashi. So we're going to be taking questions on those two topics and anything related, as well as... Uh, bringing up a few discussion points that we couldn't fit in this episode, things that we'll discuss rather than script out. So that'll be a lot of fun. And right now we've got that scheduled for October 20th, 2016, of course, at, it looks like we'll set it for about 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, but check the links once we may announce, that once this episode is published, that date will be settled, so you'll be able to see. It'll be posted in the video description as well as on our Facebook page and on other places on social media such as Twitter.
3: All right, part one, Legacy of the Ancients. Now, most of what we know about the Great Empire of the Dawn comes from the world of ice and fire. But so much of that lore is paralleled in some form or another in a Song of Ice and Fire proper. There are bridges between the two, if you know where to look, and I think we do. Those connections will be the heart of this episode. For those connections to make sense... The rate Empire has to
2: be clear in your mind, so that when we tread into the more familiar Song of Ice and Fire territory, the parallels will stand out. As we said in the intro, we're heading far to the east and far in the past, so it is fairly unfamiliar territory, which is one of the awesome things about this topic in general. Despite that, we're going to start somewhere familiar, or at least it will be familiar to you if you look at our joint episode on Ashai. Looked at? Watched? Listened? <laughs> we'll expand on that topic, which we began in that episode. The Great Ashai of the Dawn
3: is our first bit. When last we spoke, we left you with a bit of a mystery. Namely, who built shy, And why did they build it so friggin' large? shy, if you recall, is bigger than Volantis, Karth. Old Town, and King's Landing combined. It is mind-bogglingly huge, the largest city of any kind in the world that we know of, and so old that no one knows who built it. But we have guesses. Well, one guess, really, but I'd like to think it's an educated guess. Martin has left us some tasty breadcrumbs to follow, and follow them we shall.
2: There's a lot of educated guesswork in real-world history, and that's what we've got here, too. The fictional history of A Song of Ice and Fire, even the most ancient myth, is well thought out and finely crafted, and can often bear rich fruit when put to a bit of scrutiny. And that's good news for people with podcasts, and people who like podcasts. (laughs) Now, the tangled and shadowy ball of mystery that is Ashai begins with the question of who built it and why it was built so large, and it continues with another big question. What happened to it to leave it in the state that it's in? And what happened to the great civilization which must have built it? These are all questions... We will attempt to shed light on today, among many others. One thing that hasn't changed about Asha'i, despite its extreme age, is the importance of its location as a trade port. Asha'i has changed considerably over the centuries and eons in ways we don't even know about, but ships and traders and merchants still have ample profit-based reasons to be in the area. As we mentioned last time, the Asha'i are known for their extraordinary volume of rare and treasured goods and the rarity of normal things like food and water. At where else in the world can one trade food and water for golden gems at such a great margin? It's kind of like Bizarro World in so many ways. Cheap gold kind of sounds like an oxymoron, but we've seen what food shortages can do. Think of the bread riots during a clash of kings, which were just terrible. And probably not as terrible as winter will be, or even worse, the long night itself. So if a sh- food shortage exists... Right now in Ashai, when they only have about 10% of the city full, it's severely underpopulated. Imagine how the demand for food was when it was fully populated, thinking of how big it was. I mean, it must have been ridiculous. This is part of the evidence for Ashai having once been the epicenter of some great empire now lost to history. They would have had to to possess fertile lands outside the city to sustain itself. You can't generate all that food within the city itself. Where are these farmlands going to be? We're talking huge tracts of land needed to feed a population this size. There's a perfect real-world example that I like to use here. It's the Roman Empire. They fed the city of Rome itself, as well as other parts of Italy, with grain imports from Egypt. Starvation happened at various times in Rome when war or politics suspended those shipments. I'm guessing, we're guessing, this very well could have happened in Ashi in some far-flung eon long ago. Some ancient, undocumented conflict. Maybe a civil war where whichever side didn't have Ashai exerted pressure on the side that did have Ashai by shutting off those vital food supplies. It's a lot of possibilities there if you use your imagination. This could have been accomplished the old-fashioned way by simply not sending the food or by naval blockade, something like that. The point is, though, despite the vast mineral wealth Ashai would have had to be dependent on food export or imports to exist.
3: That's right, and let us not forget that the wealth of Ashai is not solely based in the material world. Much of the allure of Ashai stems from magical knowledge, magical artifacts, and even raw magical power itself, tainted though it may be. Ashai is one of the hinges of the world, according to Melisandre, and so therefore it acts as a focal point for magic energy, which sorcerers can draw on. They can also draw on Ashai's ancient tomes of magical lore, reputedly the oldest in the world. And let us not forget that these are the same old scrolls where the deeds of Azor High and his sword Lightbringer are recorded. So whether you're talking past or present, Ashai is most certainly steeped in magic, and much of it quite bloody. As Kyburn says, blood magic is perhaps the most powerful of all. Now, as we showed, Ashai is also reeking of Dragon Stink. It seems likely to have been a home of dragons before the rise of Valyria raising the distinct possibility that the lost civilization who built it possessed the art of taming and controlling dragons. Maester Yandel discusses this possibility in the world of ice and fire, referring to ancient texts in Ashai, which claim that the first dragon lords were men from the shadow and that it was they who taught their arts to the first Valyrians. He left us with a bit of a mystery, though, one which we are essentially answering with this podcast. Yet if men
2: in the shadow had tamed dragons first, why did they not conquer as the Valyrians did?
3: Yes, why didn't these nameless ancient men of the Shadowlands conquer like the Valyrians? Well, maybe they did. Maybe they did. There's one strong
2: candidate for this lost civilization, and as you might have guessed by the title of the episode, yep, it's the Great Empire of the Dawn, no doubt. As you will see, they check all the boxes needed to have been the long-lost builders of Ashai, including but not limited to possessing this great wealth and power and having strong association with Azor Ahai and dragons. As we heard at the beginning, the Great Empire is said to have possessed all the land between the bones and the freezing desert called the Grey Waste, from the Shivering Sea to the Jade Sea, including even the Great and Holy Isle of Leng. As you can see on the map here, if you're watching on YouTube or using our free Acast player, which we highly recommend, it's a way to have audio podcasts with the occasional image, like a map shot like this one, or fan art, or something that we've included, just pop up right on your phone. And it's a great way to get the little visuals in an audio environment. Just don't look while you're driving. But as you can see here, this is all the habitable land east of the Bones Mountains, basically. And it's bordered only by these extreme geographical features like the world's largest mountain range and these huge oceans and the so-called frozen desert. Everything else, they conquered. And the fact that they were able to possess the Great and Holy Isle of Leng, as they call it, indicates that they possessed maritime capabilities, the ability to transport large groups of warriors across a body of water, right? So Ashai is indeed a great port, right on the edge of the approximate borders of the fabled Great Empire, on the end of a peninsula that extends down from eastern E.T. Mirimazdur claims to have gone to Ashai by caravan, so we know the land route is still passable and in use. It seems unlikely that a great empire possessing all that land, everything worth having within reach, would not have wanted the adjoining Ashi Peninsula, with its hills rich with the golden gems, need I remind you, and its desirable location astride the Straits. As we've said, Ashi itself would need to possess a significant amount of land outside the city just to subsist for food capabilities and, and necessities, so it seems very difficult to imagine that some other empire existed alongside Ashi without coming into great conflict, at least not for a long period of time.
3: Right, and it's pretty easy to see that uh, an empire as wealthy and powerful as the Great Empire was said to have been is an excellent candidate to be the builders of the largest city in the known world. And that's what we have on our hands, potentially, with the Great Empire of the Dawn. Perhaps the largest empire the world has ever seen, a culture that was wealthy and powerful and advanced enough to build a city so large that 10,000 years of world history has yet to produce anything that rivals it. What else can we say about what it might have been like? Since Yi e. considers
2: itself, and probably is the successor of the Great Empire, calling itself the Golden Empire, we might be able to determine a few things about what it was like. The simplest explanation is that it's a lot like China, And given the vast variety of peoples and land, as well as excellent record-keeping, it's a good comparison, but don't take it too far, though they do have an Asian look given the art in The World of Ice Fire, and are described as bright-eyed by Daenerys herself. An empire would, of course, have many different kinds of peoples and cultures, but modern E.T. may have been the descendants of the former ruling class of the Great Empire, along with all the subject peoples as well, those that survived the Long Night to whom it would have been important to salvage
3: what they could of their lost culture. That's right, and if Lo- Lomas Longstrider can be believed, the cities of Yi are incomparable in size and splendor, and quantity. So he claims that even their ruins put ours to shame. Uh, the Jade Compendium claims that Yi is so old that for every city, there are three beneath it. This certainly boosts the notion of a rich history.
2: Now, much of the surrounding area is verdant forests and ample farmland, which is not hard to imagine as a similarity to their ancient ancestors. In other words, it could have been like that 10,000, 12,000 years ago as well. And civilizations with a lot of food, well, that means more babies, a bigger population, and that fuels the capacity and necessity for expansion. On the downside, we hear of basilisks infesting the jungles. And wonder if those aggressive, venomous reptiles were a terror 10,000-12,000 years ago also. Some of the jungles and deep forests have stone roads, though these were definitively not built by the ancients, but by the so-called eunuch emperors of yi Yeah, eunuch emperors, right. <laughs> a large empire such as the Great Empire of the Dawn would also need passable land routes, so perhaps they built roads as well. But if so... None have survived to this day that we know of. The term God Emperor, though, that sounds rather substantial, doesn't it? It's a really beefy title. Huh? <laughs> we hear, though, that it's not as currently a big a deal as it sounds. It's more of a... It's not an empty title, but it doesn't hold the weight you think it might. Uh, because the multitude of lesser princes that exist in ET apparently just don't answer to him anymore. They do their own thing. So no more central power, apparently. There is also talk of sorcerers and priest kings and other cool bits. These titles could also be empty vanities, however, but if not, that would be pretty cool. They may be genuine. They may have their origins rooted in the great empire. These titles may have been adopted from an old order. The god emperors themselves used to exert authority commensurate with this grandiose title. It's only now that it's not so powerful anymore. So that status indicates... Like an incarnation of the will of gods on earth.
3: Yes, that's uh, not something you trifle with uh, (laughs) haphazardly. (laughs) Wouldn't think so. Very prestigious, yes. Uh, So the first ever god emperor fellow, he was the son of the gods come down to earth, the only begotten son of the Lion of Night and the Maiden Maid of Light. And he begins the line of divine kings of the great empire of the dawn. He hangs around for a while, okay, a really long while, 10,000 years, and then he ascends to the stars to join his forebears. And that's all pretty standard mythology stuff, really. It's reminiscent of figures like Jesus and Quetzalcoatl and Osiris descending from and ascending to heaven. But then the tale continues, and after the god-emperor splits the scene, it's no longer peace on earth.
1: From the bones and beyond, the world of ice and fire. Dominion over mankind then passed to his eldest son, who was known as the Pearl Emperor, and ruled for a thousand years. The Jade Emperor, the Tourmaline Emperor, the Onyx Emperor, the Topaz Emperor, and the Opal Emperor followed in turn, each reigning for centuries, yet every reign was shorter and more troubled than the one preceding it. For wild men and baleful beasts pressed at the borders of the great empire, lesser kings grew prideful and rebellious, And the common people gave themselves over to avarice, envy, lust, murder, incest, gluttony, and sloth.
2: Damn, even incest? I guess, yeah. (laughs) Are those baleful beasts basilisks? Or, say, untamed dragons? It's possible. In a fictional universe with powerful magic, we can't dismiss the possibility of people living extra long lifespans either. We know that Melisandre has done this to some extent in, in a more limited fashion. So has Bloodraven. He's extended his life on the earth. These are not, you know, thousands of year old people that we're talking about. Well, you know, Melisandre, maybe, I don't think so, but it's possible. Her age is yet to be determined. But really, the, sim, the, the where place this really stands out as a similarity, I think, is comparing these mythical great empire figures to the age of heroes figures in Westeros, who also have these ridiculously long lifespans. That's kind of a common trait among myths, not just in A Song of Ice and Fire, but in real world myths as well. But despite the fact that it's kind of common, that doesn't mean there isn't a potential for a deeper
3: connection here, a connection between perhaps these myths. It's perhaps more likely to conclude that these gemstone emperors who were said to rule for centuries represent royal dynasties or ruling families rather than singular figures, like you said. But whatever the truth, we can see that there is a clear theme of decline in this part of the story. The Emperor's reigns grow shorter and more troubled. Invasions and rebellions seem to have taken place, and the people gave themselves over to a list of sins that sounds very close to our own Seven Deadly Sins. Except for they subbed incest in there because it's a song (laughs) of ice and fire, and you gotta have this incest. Of course. So, you know, how much of this is true, we don't know. Um, You know, were people really more sinful than usual? Maybe, maybe not. We'll never know for sure, but the story leads up to one final disaster, and it's one we recognize. Now, what could cause the end of such a powerful culture that existed for centuries and perhaps even eons? Like the Valerians, in a sense, the Great Empire of the Dawn was enormously powerful. But as the few who survived the doom would tell you, there's always something more powerful.
2: Part 2, the Old One.
1: From the bones and beyond, the world of ice and fire. When the daughter of the Opal Emperor succeeded him as the Amethyst Empress, her envious younger brother cast her down and slew her, proclaiming himself the Bloodstone Emperor and beginning a reign of terror. He practiced dark arts, torture and necromancy, enslaved his people, took a tiger woman for his bride feasted on human flesh, and cast down the true gods to worship a black stone that had fallen from the sky. Many scholars count the Bloodstone Emperor as the first high priest of the sinister Church of Starry Wisdom, which persists to this day in many port cities throughout the known world. In the annals of the further east, it was the blood betrayal, as his usurpation is named, that ushered in the age of darkness called the Long Night, despairing of the evil that had been unleashed on earth, the maiden maid of light turned her back upon the world, and the Lion of Night came forth in all his wrath to punish the wickedness of men.
3: Well, that certainly took a turn for the worse. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Here at the end of the great... Yeah. Bad ending (laughs) Uh, So here at the end At the end of the Great Empire of the Dawn tale We find one of the most detailed And fully fleshed out versions of a long night Story that we've seen anywhere The Westerosi version even doesn't Suggest why the long night happens There's no specific trigger or cause In the legends it merely says that it fell And the others came And it sucked quite a lot (laughs) The Long Night was a momentous event, which was felt the world round, so it acts as kind of a universal historical point of reference, and allows us to place a very approximate date to the Great Empire of the Dawn. They existed prior to the Long Night, perhaps for quite a long time before the Long Night, in the Dawn Age, as their name
2: implies. This lines up pretty well with the idea that the Great Empire were the builders of Ashai. We've suggested that the event which transformed the Shadowlands to its current shadowed and toxic state might have been related to the Long Night, and that Ashai must surely have been built when the peninsula was a nice place to live, i.e., before the Long Night, when the Great Empire of the Dawn ruled all that habitable land in eastern Essos.
3: So then, along comes this nasty fellow, the Bloodstone Emperor, who worships black meteors, enslaves his people, raises the dead when he's not eating the dead, now I don't have any sort of prejudice against tiger women, but the rest sounds pretty horrible. And say hello to that black meteor, which according to my grand theory is a piece of the formerly-existent second moon which blew up and caused the long night. Lightbringer.com. <laughs> but whether or not meteors might have been the true cause, according to the legends, the deeds of the Bloodstone Emperor were apparently so foul and so evil that they did somehow bring on the long night. Luckily, a hero appears. Just when they're needed most.
1: From the Bones and Beyond, the World of Ice and Fire. How long the darkness endured, no man can say, but all agree it was only when a great warrior, known variously as Hakun the Hero, Azor Ahai, Yin Ta, Nefarian, and Eldric Shadow Chaser, arose to give courage to the race of men. And lead the virtuous into battle with his blazing sword, Lightbringer, that the darkness was put to rout, and light and love returned once more to the world.
2: <laughs> Look, it's the hero we were looking for, Ashea Ahai. I mean, Azor, uh, hi. Hi. <laughs> anyway.
0: All of these legends are a pretty major clue to us readers that we should take a closer look at this great empire legend because just about anything that has to do with Azor Ahai is potentially very relevant to the main story.
2: It's also a major clue that the great empire of the Dawn is linked to Ashai, because as we've seen, the legend of Azor Ahai comes from Ashai. If Ashai was a part of the empire that the Bloodstone Emperor usurped and enslaved, then it makes sense that a leader of a rebellion might arise from amongst those enslaved people
0: yeah this really was one of those juicy nuggets in the world of ice and fire which set the nerdier parts of the fandom ablaze five five different names for azor Ahai. what can we make of that
3: well quite a bit actually <laughs> we can immediately discern the place of origin for three of the five heroes and they all come from nations which have sprang up inside the former territory of the great empire of the dawn yintar is surely the Yitish incarnation of azor Ahai. Since their oldest capital is Yin, this entire Great Empire fable comes to us from Yitish history. So it figures that they would have a Yitish version of Azor high, and they do.
2: Next, we have some fellow called Nefarian, whose name sounds like would be perfect for a Decepticon or something.
3: Nefarian. <laughs> <laughs>
2: He can only come from the city of Nefer, which is the last city of a once prosperous and now dwindled people known as the Nagai. It's a creepy, mostly subterranean city associated with black magic and such. But the point is, Nefer is inside the territory of the Great Empire.
0: Now, Hirkun the Hero is a dead giveaway because there's a huge desert east of the Bone Mountains, which used to be a kingdom called the Patrimony of Hirkun, as you can see here on the map. The only remaining traces of this kingdom are three cities of badass warrior women who guard the passes of the Bones Mountains, Biasavad, Samiriana, and Kayakayanaya. The leaders of these cities supposedly claim descent from their Hirkun himself, thus Azor Ahai.
2: Shadow Shadowchaser is kind of the oddball. His name sounds vaguely Westerosi, and Shadowchaser is a good name for someone fighting to end the Long Night. But other than that, you'd have to look at Michael Moorcock's Elric of Melnabones saga, Elric's heir, and enemy, happens to be named Irkoon. George, of course, big fan of Michael Moorcock. He threw the knot in there. There you go.
3: Okay, and that leaves us with uh, the last of the five names of this flaming sword hero, and that is, of course, Azor High. And that is found in the Scrolls of Ashai. And so uh, let's go ahead and get all these places up on the map at once. Take a look. It's like the borders of the Great Empire. So uh, if the myth of Azor Ahai sprang up around events in this part of the world during the Long Night, so think about this, it makes sense that the nations which sprang up in the wake of the Great Empire's downfall inside its former territory would all have a common myth about the flaming sword hero in the Long Night. If Ashai was part of the Great Empire, as we speculate that it was, then it makes sense that it too, like these other places, had a version of this common myth. Now, when we speak of nations springing up in the wake of the downfall of the great empire, we're actually talking about the very next lines of the world of ice and fire after Azor Ahai comes around and ends the long night with Lightbringer.
1: From the bones and beyond, the world of ice and fire. Yet the great empire of the dawn was not reborn, for the restored world was a broken place where every tribe of men went its own way. Fearful of all the others, and war and lust and murder endured, even to our present day, Also, so the men and women of the further east believe.
0: So the Long Night ended the Great Empire, and the world was changed and broken. Now this language is particularly evocative of, Ash- of Ashai and the Shadowlands, and the survivors scattered and went their own way whatever civilizations existed afterward in Eastern Essos would have sprang up in the massive void left behind by the Empire's collapse sounds like Star Wars
2: (laughs) yes the Empire's collapse the Empire (laughs) now it would be the First Order's collapse (laughs) (laughs) yi seems to be the largest and most successful of these civilizations, and their aforementioned strong record-keeping appears to go back to the Long Night, or at least back to a memory of it, which means they were probably among the first people to crawl out of the
3: chaos, famine, and anarchy that was surely the norm during the Long Night. Yeah, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, but uh, the point here is that, as we can see, yi culture wasn't alone in carrying on the torch of the Great Empire. Other cultures, such as Herkun, the Jogos-Nai, the Nagai, and presumably many others sprang up throughout eastern Essos. They were probably remnants of different tribes or races of people who had been formerly united under the Great Empire rule, since, as we said, an empire as large as the Great Empire of the Dawn would have had to have been a multi-ethnic empire to some degree. These These would be the tribes of men who scattered, according to the tale, making new kingdoms amongst the ashes of the old. The myth of the flaming sword hero went with them and traveled everywhere the former empire existed, which indicates a cultural link between the Great Empire and these survivor peoples.
0: Now, farther to the west, past the Bone Mountains, rose other kingdoms with elements that seem to have some same common threads. There's one in particular which deserves a mention here, and that is the mighty, mighty kingdom of Sarnor. The Sarnori people called themselves Tegesfen, which means tall men. And indeed, they were among the tallest people in the world. They were powerful and sophisticated, a race of warriors, sorcerers, and scholars, mm. sometimes ruled by a high king living in a city called Sarnath. Before their empire was wiped out by the Dithraki three or four centuries ago, these tall men of Sarnor could boast of a kingdom arguably as great as Ti. They seem to have emerged at a similar point in history, shortly after the Long Night, when new kingdoms were establishing themselves. They ruled over what is now the Dothraki Sea for thousands of years, and the world of ice and fire says that...
1: From the grasslands, the world of ice and fire. Their kingdoms dominated the western grasslands, from the forests of Kohor, to the eastern shores of the vanished Silver Sea and fifty leagues beyond. Their gleaming cities were strewn across the grasslands like jewels across a green velvet mantle. Shining beneath the light of sun and stars.
2: All of that comes to an end when the jewel-like cities of the Sarnori are methodically burned and destroyed by the Dothraki in the Century of Blood that followed Valyria's downfall. It's a sad story to be sure. There's only 20,000 or so tall men left in one rundown city on the coast of the Shivering Sea called Sath. But the reason why we mention it is this. The people of Sarnor claim to be descended from a legendary king named Huzor Amai, a name that, well, uh, obviously that sounds a lot like Azor Ahai, doesn't it? And there's no escaping that the final high king of the Sarnori was Mazor Alexi, also similar to both names. You can't miss that similarity.
0: No, no. And we might need some more examples of names from Sarnor, but it does sound like these rulers, to some extent at least, had a tradition of names in the mold of the Hero of the Long Night, a hero, we need to remind you, who is from the further east. Perhaps... All this means is that the kingdom of Sarnor has its roots in the Great Empire. As it is in Hirakun, the kings of Sarnor may derive their claims from a blood connection to Azor Ahai with their own version of the hero's name. In this case, it's a little more similar to the original than most.
2: Hmm.
3: And it doesn't stop there? No, don't even imagine it. Now, Valeria is an interesting question since it has so many parallels to Ashai. We did a whole episode about that. Remember that the ancient scrolls of Ashai claimed that men from the shadow, meaning the Shadowlands by Ashai, tamed dragons first and then brought that knowledge to the first Valerians before fading from history. In other words, and I know we've read that quote a couple times, but think about it. These ancient scrolls are suggesting direct contact between the last dragon lords of Ashai and the first Valerians. Now, the timeline could work, with the Great Empire and Ashai meeting their demise during the Long Night and Valeria springing up sometime shortly after the Long Night, as soon as the primitive Valerian shepherds could figure out how to get the spells to work right or whatever, and uh, design appropriate dragon size. <laughs>
2: <laughs> In those same ancient scrolls from Ashai, we find the prophecy of Azor Ahai's rebirth. The Valerians, meanwhile, have the prophecy of the prince that was promised, which is a lot like, if not exactly the same as the Azor Ahai reborn prophecy. Could they have perhaps had a legend of the original Azor Ahai as well? It's hard to know because their civilization and almost all their records were destroyed in a single day, as you well know, that old doom. But it sure seems possible, especially when you consider that Valyrian steel almost seems to be created in imitation of Azor Ahai's forging of Lightbringer, making magic swords with human sacrifice. The surviving Valyrians, those of House Targaryen, brought the prince that was promised prophecy with them to Westeros, which in turn already, meaning Westeros, had its tale of the last hero fighting to end the Long Night with his blade of dragon steel. Whether the last hero story is a variation on the Azor Ahai story, well, we've got a lot more on
3: that to come. Now, besides the parallels between Ashai and Valyria that we've already discussed, and the claims of these ancient scrolls from Ashai. There's actually a very good reason to think that the Valerians are, in fact, descendants of the Great Empire of the Dawn, and it comes from a vision Daenerys has all the way back in Book 1. It's a very important vision, one that comes to Dany while she is in the Tent of Dancing Shadows, giving birth to the dead lizard baby Rhaego, while Miriam as performs her blood magic on Drogo. I like to call this Dany's Wake the Dragon dream. Danny loses consciousness as Jora carries her into the tent, and while she's out, she has a series of visions, with each one being separated by a disembodied chant of, Wake the dragon. She sees her and Drogo coupling by a darkling stream. She sees Jora talking about the last dragon as the dragon eggs warm in a bra- uh, brazier. <laughs> warm in a brazier. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't keep That's warm. W- that's, that's worth stopping to laugh at. <laughs> <laughs> he said
2: brazier instead of bra- brazier. <laughs> 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 so her picturing Danny's dragon eggs keeping warm
3: in a bra. <laughs> she just keeps <clears> it Nice dragon's you know. eggs, baby. <laughs> 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 anyway, she sees all those things. She sees Rego as a grown man consumed by fire. And then right before the end, right before she sprouts dragon wings and flies through the red door, there's a curious vision which has never really made a lot of sense. Until
1: now. Here it is. From Daenerys Nine, A Game of Thrones Ghosts lined the hallway, dressed in the faded raiment of kings. In their hands were swords of pale fire. They had hair of silver and hair of gold. And hair of platinum white, and their eyes were opal and amethyst, tourmaline and jade. Fasa, they cried. Fasa,
2: Fasa. The loose interpretation of this passage has always been that these are Danny's ancestors, primarily because they have the signature Valyrian hair. Everyone knows silver, gold, platinum, white. It's very distinct. Mm. Uh, The one with the amethyst eyes, though, combine that with the hair, it looks like straight-up Valyrian looks, right? Like textbook. Because there's lots of Valyrian textbooks. Hmm. They seem to be rooting for Danny to wake her dragon, which makes sense if they're her ancestors. On top of that, there's this notion of pale fire, which is a bit of a hot topic. (laughs) Ah, see what I did there. Since the last Winds of Winter spoiler chapter.
3: So this uh, mysterious pale fire, it's coming from the flaming swords. In fact... What's up with those? We've never heard of the Valerians having flaming swords in a literal sense, though perhaps metaphorically, Valerian steel or the mysterious dragon steel could absolutely fit. And some have suggested that these flaming swords are evidence that Danny's dragons are themselves Lightbringer, especially with lines like this.
1: From Daenerys III, A Dance with Dragons When your dragons were small, they were a wonder, grown... They are death and devastation, a flaming sword above the world.
2: So really, there are a lot of things to consider in this Dream of Danny's, and we could easily get lost in it. Ashai and dragons and Lightbringer are all possible connections to the Great Empire, and we've shown connections between the Great Empire and Valyria. But these gemstone eyes, really, these are really telling. There's nothing like them anywhere else in the series.
3: Telling, yes, very. And we have seen that the emperors of the Great Empire of the Dawn are associated with different gemstones jade, tourmaline, onyx, topaz, opal, pearl, amethyst, and bloodstone. You may notice that the four gems in Danny's dream of the kingly ghosts are a match to four of those eight gemstone emperors opal, amethyst, tourmaline, and jade. In other words, this may well be a vision of Danny's ancestors, but from the Great Empire of the Dawn, not Valyria. Now, the amethyst eyed person in Danny's dream is perhaps meant to symbolize the amethyst empress or her tribe or house. And of course, the amethyst empress was the one in power when the Bloodstone Emperor supposedly usurped the throne, committed the blood betrayal, and caused a long night. Now, it may be that Ashai and the Great Empire did more than pass the knowledge of dragon riding to the Valyrians, they may have passed some genetics as well. That actually makes
2: a great deal of sense if you think about it, since most people in Westeros think that you need the blood of the dragon in your veins to ride a dragon. We do not know if this is technically true, given the examples of Nettles, but at the very least, we're very confident that it helps to have the special blood. At the very least. It isn't necessarily necessary. Helps a lot, though. So the logical way for Dragon Lords from Ashai to teach the arts of taming dragons to Valyria would be to marry into their gene pool. You don't have to teach anything. You just give them the genetics. If some of the last royalty of the Great Empire also had silver gold hair and eyes of amethyst, well... You know, Amethyst Empress, etc. You can see how it makes a lot of sense to hypothesize a direct line of cultural and genetic transmission between Ashi and Valyria, just as the ancient Ashi scrolls claim.
3: Right, if the basis for the dragon rider connection is having the right blood, i.e., magical genes, then you can't really justify the maesterly claims that the Valyrians were taught dragon riding, because passing those genetics the normal way by having babies. Is a lot easier to do than teaching someone how to create that magical bloodline in the past, even if it does require incest. Yeah, maybe
2: incest is what they were taught.
3: <laughs> Zing! Now the link between the gemstone eyes of the ghosts in Danny's dream and the gemstone of the empire, uh, gemstones of the emperors of the Great Empire of the Dawn was first noticed by my good friend from the Westeros.org forums, who goes by the name of Duran Durandon. I think this is a really major connection because it's what tells us that. These people that Danny saw in her dream back in book one are actually the same people as the Great Empire of the Dawn. So all credit to him for this great find. And Dern has actually written a must-read essay, what I call must-read, and it's uh, it's titled Daenerys is the Amethyst Empress Reborn, and we've got links to that on the show notes of this episode, I'm sure, or you can look it up on Westeros.org, Amethyst Empress Reborn. And uh, way back when we were first making these discoveries early last year, Dern and I were sort of sort of had our heads together on this, um, we, uh, we started noticing various parallels uh, between the Great Empire and Valyria and various dragon lords. And uh, essentially his essay focuses on the specific parallels between Daenerys and the Amethyst Empress, which, as the name implies, Amethyst Empress Reborn implies, is uh, talking about Daenerys. So one of the things that he noticed in this is that there's only one other time that someone has his eyes described as being like Amethyst, and that is Daenerys. That happens at a dance with dragons when Euron is asking Victarion to go to Slaver's Bay to bring home his bride-to-be, whether she wants to come home or not, and here's the line. From the Reaver, a feast for crows. What
1: dragon? said Victarion, frowning. The last of her line... They say she is the fairest woman in the world. Her hair is silver
3: gold, and her eyes are amethysts. So perhaps that description is given to us to draw a link, or to help us draw a link, between Danny and the Amethyst Empress, whose bloodline potentially gave rise to Valyria. Now that's a lot of perhaps and potentially, but there you go. We are presenting these links with all necessary disclaimers, and then letting you decide what you will. Right. The evidence supports these
2: conclusions. It doesn't prove them because, I mean, who could prove these things? It's it's not meant to be proven. It's too far in the past. But it is meant to be suggested and thought about. And I'll add that if Daenerys takes the Iron Throne or even conquers a part of it and holds it, she will literally be an empress. Uh, one requirement for an empire is that it contains multiple disparate kingdoms, meaning different cultures, different peoples, that kind of thing. So in this scenario, Daenerys would have part of Westeros as well as being Queen of Slaver's Bay. The Seven Kingdoms itself is culturally connected in a lot of ways, despite large differences, too much so to be qualified as an empire. And that's why he's King Aegon, not Emperor Aegon the Conqueror. And this also, by the way, explains why there's multiple names for the same savior figure within one empire. Different languages, cultures, etc. They're all going to have a different word for this kind of thing. But all bowing to the same emperor, keep in mind. Or empress. hmm? And for what it's worth, Euron claims to have journeyed to Ashai and Valyria with a special eye for magical knowledge and power. Acquiring things like the dragonbinder horn or magicians of various kinds he can chain up in the hold of silence. There is a lot to suggest he wants to be seen as a god or god-emperor like the ancient kingdoms of the East. He may have learned the idea there, learned the concept, learned how they do it. He wants to be worshipped. He elevates himself to the level of one up to a god by demonstrating his disdain for the god's men by committing atrocities against various religions and their followers and, you know, especially their priests. He does claim to have sailed as far as Ashai, so he's certainly almost certainly anyway, heard of this legend of the Great Empire of the Dawn, and he may have even seen their statues, according to this awesome line from the King's Moot.
1: From the Iron Captain, a feast for crows. His smiling eye was glittering. Who knows more gods than I? Horse gods and fire gods. Gods made of gold with gemstone eyes. Gods carved of cedar wood. Gods chiseled into
3: mountains. Gods of Empty Air, I know them all. Golden gods with gemstone eyes, eh? We'll call this very interesting and move on for now. Now, Many have noticed that Euron has certain parallels to the Bloodstone Emperor, particularly in the new t spoiler chapter. So perhaps, uh, by the way, quick shout-out, History of Westeros. Great episode on analyzing that uh, chapter. Thank you, sir. Uh, So perhaps he sees Dany as his Amethyst Empress, and himself as a kind of new King of the Long Night, a Bloodstone Emperor reborn. Perhaps.
2: And just like that tale tells us, the Bloodstone Emperor overthrew the Amethyst Empress, and this is called the Blood Betrayal. Meanwhile, Euron's plan is to marry Daenerys and steal her dragons, which... Might be bonded to her through blood, blood betrayal, etc. It's, it's there's a lot of similarity in the language used there. This, incidentally, as we said in our episode on the Forsaken, this isn't actually a spoiler if you wanted to avoid the Winds of Winter spoilers. But we did point out that that chapter makes a Uron episode important to do, and it's forthcoming from us at some point in the relatively near future. This episode has more to do with Daenerys than any other main character, but it shows you that characters like Euron and other really important figures that we'll touch on later in the episode, cross-referenced from these revelations from the world of Ice and Fire, create all sorts of important connections, which may parallel the main storyline, given how many dots we're connecting here.
3: Absolutely. And I am also working on, or working my way towards, a pretty Euron-heavy episode myself, so watch out for that because his entire face is pure mythical astronomy. It's like a freaking sky map, kind of. And I think we all agree he's lining up to be a major villain in the final act of the story. Now, returning to Danny's vision of the gemstone-eyed kingly ghosts, let's run with the notion that they might represent the rulers of the Great Empire of the Dawn and take a closer look at this vision, see what it can tell us. So first, uh, if these people are the people of the Great Empire of the Dawn... The fact that they have Valerian looks corroborates the idea that at least some of the Great Empire of the Dawn elite were dragonlords. We've already suggested that this is likely to be the case if they built a Shy, so you can see how all this kind of wants to fit together, oh so nicely. Second, these gemstone-eyed kingly ghosts are holding swords of pale fire. This would suggest that flaming sword magic, or flaming sword technology if you will, may have been possessed by the Great Empire of the Dawn. Azura High, the hero of the Long Night, who arose to defeat the forces of evil, is of course famous for his flaming sword. So again, the pieces are trying to fit together into a hypothesis, something like, the great empire possessed the art of making flaming swords, and when their empire collapsed under the evil of the Bloodstone Emperor, one of the oppressed people in the empire used their flaming sword technology to craft Lightbringer and perhaps lead the rebellion. Call him an Amethyst Empress Loyalist, perhaps. Yeah, we
2: can really only guess at the broad strokes, but the point is that it makes sense for the Great Empire to have possessed flaming sword technology, since Azor Ahai comes in at the end of the story with a flaming sword blazing for all to see. The third thing we notice about the kingly ghosts is that they're rooting for Danny to wake the dragon, right? If those ghosts are the gemstone emperors, this would again point in the direction of the great empire people, at least their rulers or some small group of them having dragons, being dragon lords.
3: Yeah, I myself do not believe that Martin would choose the same four gemstones he listed in Danny's vision in A Game of Thrones for four of the eight gemstones of the great emperor of the dawn emperors by coincidence. But for the more skeptically minded among us, God bless you, who are leery of relying on dreams and visions and prophecy, We actually have some more straightforward evidence to present to you which points in the same direction, to the idea that the Great Empire of the Dawn possessed the art of controlling dragons with sorcery.
2: Nothing really beats good old fashioned, and we mean very old fashioned, archeological evidence, especially when it's the really ancient, creepy, and amazing kind.
0: Part three, Strange Stone. two different kinds of strange stone in A Song of Ice and Fire. Fused black stone and oily black stone. Although some confusion has arisen about this, the two types of black stone are pretty distinct from one another. So let's define them and list the locations where they can be found.
2: Then we can take a look at those structures in particular and play fictional archaeologists like Indiana (laughs) Jonos. Because the Great Empire of the Dawn has potential ties to both fused and oily black stone. We're mostly going to be concerned with the Fused Blackstone, so first let's briefly discuss the oily slash greasy Blackstone, which seems to come from us, come to us rather, from the pages of an H.P. Lovecraft novel. It may well be one of the many A Song of Ice and Fire call to Lovecraftian ideas, where strange stones, meteoric or from the depths, exert some form of evil or sickening influence and sometimes act as agents for possession, mind control, or obsession to the level of Captain Ahab or... Gollum, to use another <laughs> fantasy figure. <laughs> Gollum. 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 Yeah, just like that.
3: Yeah. Uh, the first thing that we can say about George R. R. Martin's oily black stone is that we do not know what it is or where it comes from originally. It's basically a mystery. All we know is that there is some kind of black stone which has a greasy or oily look and feel to it and that it is found in several specific locations. The greasy slash oily description suggests vitrification, stone which has been melted by extreme heat, such as those melted candle wax towers at Harrenhal, where Balerion the Black Dread unleashed his Black Flame. But it seems like it might go further, as there's a strong association with dark magic as well as dark history at some of these oily black stone locations. Or, of course, it could be something else altogether besides vitrification.
0: As we mentioned in the Ashai episode, the greasy or oily black stone is found in four places. The first place is the Iron Islands, where we have the Sea Stone Chair established as being carved in the shape of a kraken from an oily black stone back within the book 2. Next, we have the Isle of Toads in the Basilisk Isles off the coast of Sothorios, where a 40 foot high oily black stone has been carved into a giant toad idol. The Isle of Toads is now inhabited by a forgotten race of people with a unpleasant fish-like aspect Whoa. who may also have webbed feet, webbed feet and hands, according to the maesters.
2: That's creepy. And it's another clear Lovecraft allusion to the Deep Ones, specifically. The city of Yeen in the jungle of Sothoryos is our next example <laughs> a city made of huge black oily stone looks splocks so huge it would take a dozen elephants to move them according to the world of ice and fire it's built in the heart of the jungle but plants i mean jungles are full of plants right It's just an overgrown situation that's what jungles are but plants don't get anywhere near Yen. it's like the stone is toxic to life or something maybe similar to ashai it is supposedly thousands of years old nobody knows who built it and its history is basically nothing but a collection of horror stories
3: and then, of course, we have a shy, which is said to be built of entirely, or built entirely of greasy black stone. We do not know if we are talking about blocks of greasy black stone or something else. Nice corbelled arches, or <laughs> little sort of masonry. Uh, we don't know. We just know it's made of oily black stone. Now, a shy stone may be toxic to plant and animal life, just as Yin appears to be. Although we can't know for sure because we don't know whether the toxicity of that area is coming from the stone or the land, or the capital S, Shadow, or something else. (laughs) Now, the greasy black stone of shy is said to drink the light, uh, but this is not said of any other greasy or oily black stone, so we can't be certain if this is a quality of all oily black stone, or just the stone at shy.
2: There's actually one more. We can call it a 4B or a maybe (laughs) 5 with an asterisk. It's Moat Kaelin, the ruined for Forest? Fortress that sits astride the neck and guards the north from invaders. Supposedly thrown up by the first men. We're saying supposedly, uh, in this case. We're calling this a maybe in general because there's a scene in A Dance with Dragons where Theon observes these scattered blackstone megaliths of the fortress after it rains. And to him, they appear to be
3: coated in some fine black oil mm.
0: yeah maybe just the wetness but maybe something
3: now this is interesting because the construction style of moat Kalin, which is built from blocks of black basalt as large as a crofter's cottage including its 50-foot high curtain wall is a close match to that of Yeen, which is built from the very large blocks of oily black stone we are all in agreement in regards to questioning the idea that the first men built moat calen at all since stacking such huge blocks into a 50-foot-high curtain wall seems somewhat beyond the capabilities of the First Men, who were mostly building crappy ring forts for the most part at this time. Now, nothing like Kalen exists anywhere in Westeros, so even if the stones aren't the oily stone or the oily kind, the size of these blocks, it's a real mystery. Now, we're told that giants had a hand in it, too, but that idea is problematic and there's really not much to support it.
0: So that's Oily Blackstone. It's weird, it's a little funky, it can be carved and shaped into idols of squid, or toads, or in my personal case, cats, <laughs> and used to build <laughs> fortresses in cities like Yin and Ashai and maybe just Mo Kaelin. It might have some magical qualities of a foul nature, too.
2: Indeed. Now, because we don't know much about the Oily Blackstone, there's only so much it can tell us about the Great Empire of the Dawn. As we've been saying, the corrupted and blighted state of the Shadowlands certainly seems to have been the result of some kind of catastrophic transformation. Mm, At least, we think it's pretty likely. And we propose that Ashai was likely to have been built before this event happened, when Ashai would have still been a nice place to live.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if Ashai's stone wasn't originally oily and toxic, we just have to suppose that the oily black stone with which Ashai is built was originally not greasy and shadowy. But was instead transformed in the catastrophe along with the shadowlands. The alternative is that the sump is that someone built the largest city in the world out of this nasty, toxic, greasy black stone. And that really just doesn't seem likely. seems
2: like ridiculous. It's like building New York
0: City out of trash.
2: (laughs) Yeah, just, yeah, like building all your pipes out of lead. (laughs) And you know that lead, yeah. (laughs) Of course, uh, Lucifer means Lightbringer here. You have your own theory about the Long Night being caused by meteor impacts on planetos, which could certainly qualify as some sort of transformation level event involving very intense heat and maybe some magic thrown in. We mentioned last time that the Bloodstone Emperor, who usurped the throne of the Great Empire and supposedly brought on the Long Night, worshipped... A black stone that fell from the sky, which that sounds like a meteor, doesn't it? And it is a meteor, in fact. That is literally what a meteor is. And that doesn't have to be black, but, you know, something that falls from the sky. Unless it comes out of an airplane. (laughs) But we don't think that was in play here. So the idea of a meteor impact at this time is definitely suggested by the legend.
3: Yes, and interestingly, I found that comets are actually coated in greasy black tar that scientists call... Space gunk. Very scientific sounding. Yes, uh, that's, uh, you know, the scientists. They've always got a nickname because their actual name is impossible to pronounce. (laughs) Uh, So, and this uh, this black, greasy space gunk is basically like the char on your barbecue. So maybe that's something Martin had in mind. Uh, My idea is that this meteorite, perhaps having this black toxic poison or whatever, brought some sort of dark magic with it. And then, I mean, the Bloodstone Emperor worshipped it after all, and so we know what kind of stuff he was into. It's not really a stretch to us think that maybe this stone somehow had something magical about it. So I like to imagine this black meteor of the Bloodstone Emperor perhaps sitting in the heart of the Shadowlands, poisoning all the land around it over time. Something like the meteor in A Lovecraft's A Color Out of Space, where that meteor basically like leached the color out of the land and turned everything basically to, to dead dead land or even dust. Yeah. So... That's a great quick, story. <laughs> yeah, good, good, quick read for anybody. <laughs> highly else. recommended, yeah. So uh, that's that's what I'm thinking, that maybe essentially this, this meteor came, it carried with it the black oily magic or whatever, and then after it landed, it leached out into the land, and the once glorious heart of the Great Empire of the Dawn was turned into a city of toxic, greasy black stone. Maybe it was built with white alabaster before, who knows. Um, the point is, that there's too much of this oily black stone for it all to be meteorite material. So I'm suggesting some sort of a poisoning or transformation process, and of course there's a lot of symbolism that I think points that way as well. Now the other meteor-related possibility is a bit more straightforward. As meteors fall through the atmosphere, they push a wave of superheated air in front of them that is, in fact, hot enough to melt stone. So if a meteor did fall here sometime around the time of the Long Night, as the legend suggests, it may well have caused tremendous damage on impact, perhaps burning and vitrifying the stone. And it can do that even if it just explodes in the air over the land, like the Tunguska event, you know, Mm. hopped up on steroids, perhaps. Mm. Now, this is, again, like you said, where I'd really like to have an interview with Archmaester Marwyn and ask him what he actually saw at (laughs) shy. But uh, who knows? We'll cross our (laughs) fingers for that. (coughs) Now, while it's fun to speculate, and we do mean it's fun, the fact is that we just do not know What the Greasy Black Stone is, or where it originally came from, like I said. The bottom line is that the Great Empire was said to have fallen at the time of the Long Night, during the historically evil reign of the Bloodstone Emperor, and there's a black meteor involved in the story. It's pretty easy to see how shy comes out on the other side of this kind of series of events, transformed and blighted. And it may be that this is when the Oily Black Stone was created.
2: That's right, and it's important to note that nowhere is any fused stone specifically described as greasy or oily looking, and none of the oily black stone locations we have seen firsthand look like they were shaped intentionally with sorcery. Yin is made of hewn blocks, and the toadstone statue and seastone chair are both carved. They appear to be two different and distinct types of stone, and if there is a crossover between the two, we haven't seen it yet. Maybe Asha is made of fused oily black stone, but we do not know. Like... Most things related to Oily Blackstone and a lot of things related to eye, it's a mystery. With the one notable exception of the Seastone Chair, nearly everything we know about Oily Blackstone comes from the World of Ice and Fire, which was published after A Dance with Dragons. We'll be on the lookout for more Oily Blackstone in the Winds of Winter. You should, too. If we don't see it referred to, it's probably safe to say at this point or at that point that it's some great world-building But it's not probably relevant to the Song of Ice and Fire proper. But if you do see it in the Winds of Winter, you'll be ready. You'll know what it means. You'll be ahead of the game. A lot of other fans reading it won't understand what's going on. Like, what is this? (laughs) So that's cool. So you guys will be the experts on Strange Stone, all of you lovely listeners. (laughs) And you'll be able to tell one kind from the other. The Oily Stone is but the first. So here we go with the Fused Black Stone. From the Reach. The world of ice and fire. The dragon lords of
1: Valyria, as is well known, possessed the art of turning stone to liquid with dragon flame, shaping it as they would, then fusing it
0: harder than iron, steel, or granite. We also hear that it shows no sign of joint, seam, mortar, or chisel mark. This so called fused black stone can only pr- be produced in one way that we know of and that is with dragon fire and sorcery. Dragon fire to turn the stone molten and sorcery to control the dragon, to make the stone flow into the desired shape and then to freeze it in place. Now, if you've ever tried to shape molten rock with your bare hands, well, you know, it can be pretty frustrating. (laughs) I've had this problem
2: myself
1: many
0: times. (laughs) Do not try it at home.
2: You really need sorcery. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You might see fused black stone called dry black stone in the fandom on forums or something like that to differentiate it from the wet slash oily black stone. The World of Ice and Fire refers to it as either fused stone or dragonstone. Lowercase D. You can see why we're not gonna do that, that's confusing. Dragonstone the castle, capital D, which is made of fused black stone. Yeah, dragonstone is made of dragonstone. So yeah, we're gonna not make it more confusing, so we're gonna keep calling it fused stone. Before the Valyrians built Dragonstone, they used this technology closer to home, the Valyrian Peninsula, and nearby it, such as Volantis. It's the closest that we know of to Valyria that still exists.
1: From the free cities, the world of ice and fire, 200 feet tall and so thick that six four-horse chariots can race along their battlements side by side as they do each year. To celebrate the founding of the city. These seamless walls of fused black dragonstone, harder than steel or diamond, stand in mute testimony to Volantis' origins as a military outpost.
0: The city has grown far beyond those black walls so that they are now more like inner walls, but only those who can claim direct descent from Valyria actually live behind those famous walls. Now less famous, but somewhat similar, are the Black Walls of Tyrosh. There's no fancy, old blood, exclusivity thing going on here that we've heard of, and these walls probably aren't as large, but like Volantis, the place was built as a military outpost, and over the centuries, if not eons, it grew well beyond those walls. Right
2: on. And they also did this on a smaller scale in more remote places, where their interest was in slaves rather than military concerns. A few stone outpost exists on the peaceful Isle of Nath, for example or Nath, how do you guys say that? <laughs> yeah. Nath,
3: Nath, whatever. N double A Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in addition to building fortresses this way, there are the legendary Valerian roads, which Lomus Longstrider counted among his list of wonders made by man in his famous book of the same title. The Valerians earned a second spot on the Long Striders list by making a Valerian road over the mouth of a huge river. And here we are speaking of the Long Bridge of Valantis, which is made entirely of fused black stone.
0: But that's it. As far as we're told, surely we'd have more examples of it in the world if Valeria didn't get doom smacked, as it seems to be nearly indestructible. Some of the fused stone structures made in the Valerian Peninsula would have sunken into the sea, but if they're truly as hard as diamond, Even the extreme heat might not destroy them—at least, not all of them.
2: Some of the so-called topless towers. Hot. (laughs) Ah, I get it. I get it. Topless. Oh, topless. Topless high towers. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes.
0: Hot and Valeria's hot.
2: (laughs) Towers gone wild. (laughs) (laughs)
3: That's funny.
2: So the topple Towers of Valyria that are f- famous from history that we hear about being built there, they may have been made of this Dragonstone slash Fused Stone. And only Euron knows for the, what these cursed cities of the Freehold look like nowadays, unless he's a bloody liar. Okay, he's yeah. probably a bloody liar. So probably nobody knows what they look like, but mm-hmm. it's possible somebody does. Anyway, mm-hmm. the full Freehold of Valyria was around a very long time, thousands of years, maybe five or more, and they controlled a huge portion of Essos, but all of their most important cities on the Valyrian Peninsula perished in the Doom, so there's really no way to know how much the fusion was used throughout the heart of the
3: Empire, but I'm guessing there was some, maybe a lot. Now, in any case, the Valerians didn't just use dragon flame and sorcery to make roads and fortresses. They also made swords that way, of course. Although there are strong rumors and hints that making Valyrian steel involves human sacrifice and blood magic, there are no such rumors about Fused Stone, for what it's worth. As long as those Valyrian roads are, I certainly hope they didn't require blood magic. But with an empire as bloodthirsty and ruthless as Valyria, we certainly can't rule it out either. Now, despite that, there is a lot in common with Valerian steel and fused stone. Given those similarities, perhaps should we, we should be calling this stuff Valerian stone. But we wouldn't do that because that would be confusing. So we'll call it fused stone. So all that is well and good, useful
2: information, no doubt. But what does it have to do with the Great Empire of the Dawn? Well. There are two places in the world with structures that are made with what appears to be fused stone, but are clearly not the work of Valyria. Indeed, both are said to date back to a time before Valyria even existed, before they arose, before the shepherds found those dragons, (laughs) before the Long Night. Uh, The first of these examples is very far away, far back in the east, and best of all, it was supposedly built by the Great Empire of the Dawn. From the bones and beyond, the world of ice and fire.
1: No discussion of Yi-Ti would be complete without a mention of the Five Forts, a line of hulking ancient citadels that stand along the northeastern frontiers of the Golden Empire, between the Bleeding Sea and the Mountains of the Morn. The Five Forts are very old, older than the Golden Empire itself. Some claim they were raised by the Pearl Emperor during the mourning of the Great Empire, To keep the Lion of Night and his demons from the realms of men. And indeed, there is something godlike or demonic about the monstrous size of the forts. For each of the five is large enough to house 10,000 men. And their massive walls stand almost a thousand feet high.
0: The five forts are insanely large. Like crazy large they're a thousand feet each now that's taller than the wall easily and you have to remember that george himself has said that he might have made the wall too big
2: and he said that before writing the world of ice and fire So
0: very crazy (laughs) and the five forts has a somewhat similar sounding purpose of keeping out demons i bet that if the five forts were not still standing they would sound like an especially exaggerated myth surely they weren't actually that tall they'd say Now, the same thing goes for the wall itself. If it ever falls, just how many decades would pass before people began to doubt the reality of its existence, before the maesters began concluding that it was most likely nothing more than an ordinary, perhaps extra tall, border wall, which was simply crusted with ice more often than not. Unless, of course, they somehow have the ability to make a new wall of the same size, then they might believe these old tales, and they wouldn't seem like myths. Indeed.
3: Indeed. The Wall and the Five Forts are not myths, but their origins seem to date back to mythical times. The castles on the Wall are one thing, but the Wall itself is hard to date. It's just ice, after all.
0: <laughs> it's really difficult to date the Wall. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Even if I'm it's sorry. topless. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: sorry.
3: <laughs> the Wall's not uh, topless. I
0: couldn't, let it, I couldn't let it pass me by.
3: <laughs> Thanks for... Thanks for derailing me. Okay, so <laughs> now there's—it's hard to date the wall because the wall is just ice, and because it's very cold, and because it's—you know—it's—it's it's big and it's just not very comfortable in bed, you know, all <laughs> ice. And,
2: yes,
3: I... Anyways, so there's no architectural style or technique. <laughs> the wall has no style. I can't date it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so insulting. No technique. No oh, technique oh, at all. <laughs> oh man. So, now oh. the thing is, we haven't been into the heart of the North to uh, Otheropolis. So maybe there's more icy buildings there, who knows. But the five forts, and that's what we want to talk about, are made of fused stone, and that fact, along with their incredible size, makes them the subject of much scholarly debate.
0: Exactly. The technology could be Valyrian, that at least might fit. But the style does not fit, the location really does not, and the timeline really, really, really does not. They are said to be older than the Golden Empire of Yi itself, dating back to the earlier stages of the Great Empire of the Dawn, well before the Long Night.
3: Yeah, you can see the conflict that the maesters are wrestling with. The five forts are made of fused stone, which dictates that they were built with sorcery and probably dragonfire, but dragon lords aren't supposed to exist that far east, and they're also not supposed to exist before Valyria. Something has to give here. Either Valeria built the five forts after the long night and nobody remembers, which is unlikely, given that the massive size of those things would imply an equally massive building project. And after all, there is uh, probably more fused stone total in the five forts than there was, you know, possibly anywhere else in the rest of the world. Yeah, all put together, yeah. (laughs) So that's the first possibility. Valeria built them and everyone forgot. Or... There was another race or group of sorcerers building with fused stone in the Far East before the Long Night. Sorcerers could also, uh, who could also shape the stuff into something as ridiculously massive as the Five Forts.
0: So were these sorcerers dragon lords as well? Again, something has to give. Either these people knew some way to generate heat on par with dragon flame, or they had a way of controlling dragons.
2: The sorcery stuff we can't really answer for. It's just wide open and full of possibilities like magic always is. But the dragons are another matter. We know a little more about them and, you know, whenever they live, they leave behind bones. Dragon bones are really, really long-lasting. They don't break down. They, You know, they stick around. <laughs> we were... Already on to the idea of Dawn Age, Valerian Dragon Lords because of all the clues about dragons at Ashai, But even without any of that, the existence of the five forts is like this huge flashing red light. Five flashing red lights (laughs) (laughs) calling our attention to this possibility. Black lights? (laughs) The heat of Dragon Flame is said to be surpassed only by the heat of volcanoes and of the sun. So it seems a bit far-fetched that there is some... Other as yet unheard of way to make fuse stone that doesn't involve dragonfire.
0: Just harness the sun.
2: Yeah, just harness the sun. Simple as that. You know, yeah. the first order again. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're exactly. just back to them again. We're back to that. <laughs> it's far more likely that the only technique we have ever been given to make fuse stone is the one used to make the five forts, dragonfire and sorcery.
3: Yeah, there's there's two great crackpots you can come up with here. You can imagine a Valerian version of Dune with uh, dragon lords controlling fireworms <laughs> okay, to make Fused Stone, right? Or you can have uh, Merlings riding sea dragons. But I don't know how they get to the five forts because there's no river or sea there, but yeah, there you have it. It was probably dragons like dragon dragons. Real so dragons. yeah. It very well may be that the five forts were included in the world of ice and fire, in my opinion, specifically to give us a hint that some in the Great Empire of the Dawn were dragon lords. Like Valyria, which only had 40 or so dragon rider families, it may have been similar for the Great Empire, where you've got the 1% of the 1% of the 1% only. That kind of thing. The fact that the five forts survive intact, though they seem to be more than
2: 10,000 years old, is a testament to the hardness of Fused Stone. It's basically indestructible, like Valyrian steel. It probably takes something like the eruption of the 14 flames to shatter or melt the
3: stuff, or perhaps an earthquake, or all those things, which is what the Doom <laughs> was, right? Uh. <laughs> One thing we really can't be sure of is why the Great Empire didn't seem to build other things with Fused Stone. But as we showed, Valeria really didn't do that much of it either, considering how long their history was. Now, of course, we aren't sure how easy it is to get dragons to cooperate with the tedium of road building and wall building. Maybe it was kind of tricky on some days when the dragons were a little grumpy. Anyway.
0: It might have been hard to do or something most dragon lords just didn't care to do. Only one king in the history of the Seven Kingdoms is famous for making roads, for example. Jaehaerys I, the old king, and only the eunuch emperors of Yi Ti were famous for this. And these are just the ordinary kind of road. Surely other kings could have done this, but they just didn't. So, in other words, it doesn't just take knowledge and ability to launch a massive urban building project. It takes willpower and a reason to care.
3: That's right. That's a good point. And another possibility is that only one dynasty of emperors had control of dragons, built a couple things, and then lost control of dragons. Perhaps all the dragon riders got eaten.
2: <laughs>
3: or perhaps the Long Night is what ended their phase of few stone building. We can't know for sure, or even vaguely, but we can say that the Forts are pretty close to smoke and gun evidence for the idea of the Great Empire of the Dawn, having been a race of dragon lords in some capacity. Again, perhaps just the elite. Point is... Some of them were dragon lords, and they made Fused Stone. At least that's what we're claiming. <laughs> One of the reasons we make this guess is the seeming rarity of non-Valerian Fused Stone. If it wasn't well-nigh indestructible, we couldn't make such a guess. And to be fair, maybe there is more of it in the jungles of yi e. or on Leng, or in the sprawling desert, which was once known as the Patrimony of Harkun, or maybe to the east off the map, or under the sea. But right now... We have only one more example of pre valyrian fused stone, and this one really stands out because it's in Westeros, in a very notable location, which you've certainly heard of. From the Reach,
1: the world of ice and fire. Even more enigmatic to scholars and historians is the great square fortress of black stone that dominates that isle. For most of recorded history... This monumental edifice has served as the foundation and lowest level of the high tower. Yet we know for a certainty
2: that it predates the upper levels of the tower by thousands of years. Awesome, right? Robert E. Howard, creator of Conan, deserves a shout out here again so soon after getting one in our Bittersteel episode. He wrote a story called... The Black Stone. How about that? Which he intentionally wrote as a nod to H.P. Lovecraft, who was his mentor. There are clear references in the Black Stone story to the Toadstone as well, in in uh, because it was a castle in the story built atop an ancient shrine, and that shrine was made of the Black Stone, just like the High Tower. You've got a big structure built on top of a strange Black Stone foundation. From the reach. The world of ice
1: and fire. Who built it? When? Why? Most maesters accept the common wisdom that declares it to be a Valyrian construction, for its massive walls and labyrinth interiors are all of solid rock, with no hint of joints or mortar, no chisel marks of any kind. A type of construction that is seen elsewhere most notably in the dragon roads of the freehold of Valyria, and the black walls that protect the heart of old Valantis.
2: Now, on the surface, it does make sense to guess that the base of the high tower was made by the Valyrians, given the seeming rarity of strange stone around the world. There's not much of it. <laughs> but we've pretty much worked out already that it can't be Valyrian. So let's see if the Maesters can figure that out too. <laughs> From the reach the world of ice and fire
1: if indeed the first fortress is valyrian it suggests that the dragon lords came to westeros thousands of years before they carved out their outpost on dragonstone long before the coming of the andals or even the first men
0: Again, the Maesters are caught between a literal rock and a hard place. (laughs) Here is a fused stone fortress said to predate the Long Night, and thus Valyria, and it's located in a place the Valyrians did not come to. Maester Yandel is compelled to say that the construction suggests Valyrian involvement because fused stone implies dragonlords, and the Valyrians are the only dragonlords anyone knows about. This, however, would be a
3: massive contradiction of a lot of known history because the First Men are thought of, by everyone, to have come to Westeros in the Dawn Age, before the breaking of the Arm of Dorne, supposedly some 4,000 years before the Long Night. And we are pretty certain that the Valyrians didn't come along until sometime after the Long Night. Accordingly, Yandel doesn't seem to think too much of this possibility, and follows the evidence to a rather unsettling conclusion. From the Reach, the world of ice and fire.
1: More troubling and more worthy of consideration are the arguments put forth by those who claim that the first fortress is not valerian at all the fused black stone of which it is made suggests valeria but the plain unadorned style of architecture does not for the dragon lords loved little more than twisting stone into strange fanciful and ornate shapes within the narrow twisting windowless passages strike many as being tunnels rather than halls it is very easy to get lost amongst their turnings mayhaps this is no more than a defensive measure designed to confound attackers but it too is singularly unvalyrian
2: And there you have it. That's what this boils down to. So far as we know, Fused Stone is the hallmark of Dragon dragon Lord construction, but just as with the Five forts, we must reject the idea that the Valyrians were involved. Instead, we must look for some older race. Even the tinfoil-hating maesters are forced to admit it because that's where the evidence leads. It's that
3: simple. Well, it's not simple, (laughs) but the evidence leads us there. That part's (laughs) simple. (laughs) And of course, we think there's a strong chance we're dealing with the Great Empire of the Dawn here. The archaeological argument is hard to get around. Very hard, like (laughs) Fused Stone. And how many ancient Dragonlord races could there have been anyways? Some have suggested a connection between this fortress's maze-like tunnels and the mysterious people from the ancient Isles of Lorath known as the Maze Makers, which is a cool idea, but the sprawling maze-like structures at the Lorathi Isles were made from fairly ordinary hewn stone, definitely not Fused Stone, and not oily black stone either, for what it's worth, so it doesn't seem like a very strong possibility.
0: And there really aren't any other contenders. Which is why Maester Yandel ends the section on the High Tower and the Battle Isle Fortress by just kind of shrugging his shoulders and moving on. He had just said a moment ago that the Valyrian origin idea is not as worthy of consideration as the possibility that some older people built it. But he can't go any further because he just doesn't know any other dragon lords.
2: So his shrug is our episode. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> the missing link here may be... The Great Empire of the Dawn, certainly what we're trying to suggest and where the evidence is taken us. Yeah,
0: the remaining problem may be the vast distance from eastern Essos to Old Town is a really long way, a really long way. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but we have seen in the story, there are oceanic trade routes all the way from Ashai to Westeros, which are regularly sailed by people from all parts of the world, even though it takes a long time. And don't forget that. This was all one continent back in the day. Westeros, Landbridge, you know, the the, the Arm of Dorne, etc. The Great Empire of the Dawn bordered the Shivering Sea and the Jade Sea and included the very large island kingdom of Lang in its empire. So there's every reason to suspect, as we said before, that they are capable mariners. This is by far the most likely way for the Great Empire to have moved enough people to support a building project at Battle Isle, which would, by necessity, include soldiers to keep the builders safe and all the other roles needed to support a colony, which is what we would think this would have been.
0: Yeah. So if the Great Empire were Dragonlords, well, then obviously that opens us up to another means of travel that we need to consider. You can't move many people or supplies via Dragonback, but Dragonlords do make some pretty terrific explorers as we hear about in the World of Ice and Fire
1: from beyond the free cities, the world of ice and fire. Janara Balerys flew her dragon, Terax, farther south than any man or woman had ever gone before, seeking the boiling seas and steaming rivers of legend, but found only endless jungle, deserts, and mountains. She returned to the Freehold after three years, to declare that Sothoryos was as large as Essos,
3: a land without end. The northern part of Sothoryos is closer to Valyria than the Great Empire is to Westeros, to be sure. But Genera flew south for at least a year and a half. That's a lot of ground to cover. Sothoryos really must be truly huge, and by the time she turned back for home, she may well have flown even farther than the distance from Ashai to Old Town. Now, the latter is a much easier trek, given what we know of Sothoryos. Not really any good places to land in Sothoryos to, uh, you know, eat and such. Or at least every time you did, it would be an adventure. Now, Jannera's exploration of Sothorios, therefore, was a truly impressive feat all the way around, and it demonstrates how effective dragonlords can be at exploring new continents. Imagine if, at the end of her journey, Jannera had eventually found a rich land like the Reach, instead of a huge jungle full of freaks and monsters, meaning no offense to brindled men. Perhaps you would have flown back to Valeria with the word of a great place to build a colony.
0: We can't rule out land travel either, because some of this potential migration could have occurred before the breaking of the Arm of Dorn. As with Dragonlord Airways, this is not (laughs) as practical of a way to move large groups of people or soldiers from eastern Essos to Westeros, at least not with any kind of urgency. It's just too far, even after you cross the inhospitable Bones Mountains. Over centuries, gradual migration could travel this far, but we're looking for the Dragonlords, and if Dragonlords had migrated by land all the way across Essos, there would be many more legends and signs of their passing, you would think. The land route could, however, be used by an explorer from the Great Empire, someone like an ancient version of Lomas Longstrider, or by caravans traveling throughout Essos, much like they do today.
2: The thing we want to do is focus on the sea route, though, because it's the most likely. It's the one that makes the most sense, and it's what's actually suggested in the world of ice and fire, as we're about to see. Old Town is, of course, first and foremost, a port city built at the mouth of a river, That's a popular place to build a city. (laughs) It's done to take advantage of and control trade. It makes a lot of sense. Of course, you don't have to build a creepy fused stone fortress just to conduct trade. So if the Great Empire came this far and built a fortress out of this extremely rare stuff, and remember, the only other example we have of them doing this is the five forts. The other examples we have are all Valyrian. So it must have been for a very important reason. Uh, Trade is likely to be part of it, but this is a fantasy story after all. These are sorcerers we're talking about coming to a magical land like Westeros. (laughs) From the Reach, the world of ice and
1: fire. How old is Old Town, truly? Many a maester has pondered that question, but we simply do not know. The origins of the city are lost in the mists of time and clouded by legend. We can state with certainty, however, that men have lived at the mouth of the honey wine since the dawn age. The oldest runic records confirm this, as do certain fragmentary accounts that have come down to us from maesters who lived amongst the children of the forest. One such, Maester Jellicoe, suggests that the settlement at the top of Whispering Sound began as a trading post, where ships from Valeria, Old Gis, and the Summer Isles put in to replenish their provisions, make repairs, and barter with the elder races, and that seems as likely a supposition as any.
0: The first thing to notice in that quote is that Yandel is directly suggesting that the first settlement at the location of Old Town was created for the purpose of trading with people who came to ancient Westeros by ship. That's a pretty sensible conclusion given Old Town's historical status as a wealthy port, something that was perhaps true even in these extra-ancient times. Naturally, we have to wonder if these seafaring traders might not have been from our favorite Dawn Age empire from the East. Westeros trades with the Shy today, of course...
3: Here at Battle Isle, the traders themselves may have been the ones who built the trading outpost, just as the Valerians did at Dragonstone, which was also used as a fortified trading outpost between the Valerians and Westerosi. Apparently, it was like Valerian sword depot, because we're told that the Targaryens, Valerians, and Celtigars controlled the sea trade of the Narrow Sea, and that it wasn't uh, that it was during this time that Valerian steel began to flow into Westeros. There are supposedly 227 Valyrian steel swords in Westeros, so that's a fair amount of sword peddling given the exorbitant prices that we hear of. Dragonstone's strategic maritime location makes it a good place to build a trading outpost, just as Battle Isle's location athwart the Honeywine does. Tyrosh too fits the bill as a fortified trading post made of Fused Stone and built on an island in a strategic location. The role of Ice and Fire continues by suggesting that the builders of the Battle Isle Fortress May have been seeking more than just trade. From the reach, the world of ice and fire.
1: Were they slavers? Mayhaps seeking after giants. Did they seek to learn the magic of the children of the forest, with their green seers and their weirwoods, or was there some darker
2: purpose? These are seriously awesome, imagination-provoking ideas. Even the darker bit, especially the darker purpose bit. But let's take a moment and think about this concept. Come to learn the magic of the children. Whoa, that's so many. Wow, that's just uh, mind blown. What if some of the ancient magics attributed to the East were actually first learned in the West? Hmm. That's something
3: we're going to talk about in the Q&A discussion episode that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Actually... That's a topic I'll be exploring in the next few mythical astronomy podcasts because I do think there is a connection between Azor Ahai and Greenseer magic and between Greenseer magic and dragon bonding. It's a bit of a side branch to our topic here. Greenseer magic, trees, (laughs) side branch.
0: But you're right to point
3: out that it is a fascinating tidbit. Hey, you can't bring me on History of Westeros and expect me not to make punts because that's what you guys do. All right. So let's also consider the other tantalizing suggestion about why the builders of the Fused Stone Fortress might have come to Westeros to enslave giants. That's a pretty tall order. Oh, man. I would say. But it might not be total fiction because we have already heard a famous story about a legendary long-lived mythical figure using giants for workers, and that would be Brandon the Builder. Perhaps it was a mutually beneficial arrangement at uh, Battle Isle, much like Woon Woon helping the uh, Night's Watch in A Dance with Dragons, working for uh, turnips and vegetables, it appears. (laughs) But we must also consider the possibility that helping is serious distortion and that these were not willing helpers. Brandon the Builder is also rumored to have been involved with the construction of the later iterations of the high tower, which were built on top of the fused stone fortress. So perhaps there's a connection here between advanced builders of ancient Westeros and using giants for manual labor, willing or unwilling.
0: Compare the idea that the base of the high tower was originally a slaver outpost, like, say, the ones the Valyrians made at Nath. They did this presumably because slavers all agree that people from Nath make the best slaves giants wouldn't be quite as tractable but think of all the work that they could do <laughs> the huge things that they could lift the slavers must have thought of that they just have to have mm. the more we compare the great empire to valyria the more common themes that we find but this is our first foray into the slavery parallels it was obviously huge in valyria as we all well know given that it is still in full swing over in Yt it might have been present in the Great Empire as well. The Bloodstone Emperor, for instance, was said to enslave the citizens of the Great Empire during the long reign, his long night reign of terror, but it is certainly possible that the citizens might have enslaved other people prior to this.
2: Yeah, it's hard to say. Did they also enslave the children themselves and carry them far to the east? Whoa, like just a few of them, experiment <laughs> on them. and phew, Yeah, a lot of <laughs> possibilities there. With giants, this has seemingly been done in current times as well. Yezin and Zokegaz, the Yellow Whale, I'm sure you remember him, He, who is described as, you know, four Illyrios, <laughs> right? <laughs> Even if it didn't come from Westeros, this giant slave of his, it surely didn't come from Slaver's Bay, so it traveled at least some distance, possibly mm. a great distance. So this is not without precedent. So we, and the World of Ice and Fire, are hammering away mm. at this point that someone who came well before the Valyrians made this. And however shocking that may be, the evidence is extremely strong. Either the Great Empire came here and built this fortress outpost, again, fortress-slash-trading outpost built at the mouth of a harbor like Dragonstone or Volantis or Tyrosh, or else an entirely separate Dragonlord civilization existed and built Battle Isle. We think the former seems more likely by far.
3: Now, as we examined in our Shy episode, the legends around Battle Isle also indicate a dragon presence in this part of Westeros. We have tales of dragonslayers from the Age of Heroes in the Reach, such as Sirwin of the Mirror Shield and Davos' Dragonslayer, and there are old tales of dragons having roosted on the walls of the Battle Isle Fewstone Fortress until the first high Hightower slew them. When taken into consideration with the Fewstone Fortress, it really does seem like we have a case of myth which has a basis, in fact. So, what happened to the builders? Well, again, the name Battle Isle might be a clue perhaps the dragonlords did try to invade from their fortress stronghold but were turned back here in the great forgotten battle which gave the island its name and that's a mystery they talk about is that it's named battle isle but no one remembers why or what battle it was so then we have Archmaester Peristan speculating that the valerians built the Pewstone battle isle fortress and he suggests that quote the valerians had in ancient days reached as far as old town but suffered some great reverse or tragedy that caused them to shun all of Westeros thereafter.
0: Now, if we allow that he is mistaking the Great Empire of the Dawn for Valyria, the rest of his speculation may be correct. Perhaps the tales of the High Towers putting an end to the dragons roosting in Battle Isle refers to the High Towers and other First Men putting an end to the dragon lords who are roosting there. Hmm. From the Reach in the World of Ice and Fire... The stony island where the high tower stands is known as Battle Isle, even in our oldest records. But why? What battle was fought there? When?
2: These are questions we can't really answer, but it would fit if it was part of the War for the Dawn. Controlling a Fused Stone Fortress seems like a big deal, let alone making it. <laughs> we mentioned the parallels between the, ba- the Battle Isle Fortress and Dragonstone as fortified trading posts built of Fused Stone and actually Tyros fits fit the description as well. And it's worth noting that the surviving Valyrians of House Targaryen eventually turned their fortified trading outpost into a place to launch an invasion of Westeros. One has to wonder if the Great Empire might have done something similar, or at least (laughs) thought about it. Since the pages of history can't tell us, we'll stick to the physical evidence. We've looked at the stone, and we'll continue to, but there's another form of physical evidence we haven't touched on yet. People.
0: (laughs) Part 4, The First Men of the Dawn. Now's the time to clear up something that is often overlooked. The Andals are a specific race with a particular culture and set of gods. Same goes for the Roinar. It's easy to assume that this is the same for the First Men, but it is not exactly true. Although there is a contiguous set of beliefs and practices centered around worship of the Old Gods, which we associate with First Men, the phrase First Men is really more of a description than it is the name of a people. Andal and Roynar are specific peoples. First men is a general blanket term.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, personally, what I suspect is that when the Andals came, they simply dubbed everyone who was already there First Men. I like that suggestion a lot
2: because the Andals are the ones who first started writing everything down. If the original First Men had more written records explaining all the different waves of migration and who all these different (laughs) sub-peoples are, it might be otherwise. It might have a record of it, but... We don't. So yeah. they're just this blanket term.
0: <laughs> the Roinar, you must remember, came in one major wave, all with Nymeria, and they came from the same place along the Roin. The Andals came in a succession of waves, not all at once, but like the Roinar, they all came from the one specific place, Andalos.
2: On the other hand, the first men came in waves spread out over thousands of years, and crucially, not from one particular place. They were a mixture of incredibly ancient cultures from a time we have no records of, just tales. But we also have some archaeological evidence. We do not really know where the First Men came from. The maesters only have the vaguest of speculation. Over time, the First Men, living as close together as they did throughout Westeros, grew close to one another. And these disparate groups began to amalgamate. But not all of them. Compare the early First Men who settled in Dorne to the ones who settled in the North. Take two identical cultures, throw half of them in a desert and the other half in a land of ice and snow, and let a thousand years pass, then see how identical they still are. They won't be. That said, certain things would still look familiar from one to the other. Some traditions die hard, and religion... Very commonly is one of those things.
0: Yeah, as we know, the first men eventually adopted the worship of the old gods, which they learned from the children of the forest. This is the common and simple version of the tale, and it gets the point across because this is what the first men are like now in the current A Song of Ice and Fire setting. But it also implies that the first men were once a variety of peoples having a different religion or religions. So basically, there's a lot we don't know, and what we do know is suspect.
3: The general timeline, pieced together by the Maesters, says that some several thousand years or so before the Long Night, the First Men began trickling over the arm of Dorne. This time frame between the uh, beginning of the Migration and the Long Night is roughly separated into two periods, the Dawn Age and then the Age of Heroes, with the hammer of the waters and the pact between the First Men and the children supposedly dividing the two eras. The masters, however, don't sound too sure of this, suggesting that there is essentially very little means of distinguishing between fable and fact with these old legends. Now, of course, the same is true in our modern world. Without, historically recent, or without the historically recent advent of modern science, we would have very little about what was going on with any person or event from 10,000 years ago or even 5,000 years ago. Even with modern science, much debate ensues. As we mentioned earlier, the Long Night is really
2: the one major historical event which we can be absolutely sure happened all over the world at the same time. And therefore, it serves as a useful way to try and organize ancient history. It's nice to have that simple reference point. <laughs> it actually goes further than that, though, because the Long Night would have acted like a major cultural bottleneck. If there was a period of no major sunlight that lasted even five or six years, let alone a generation, worldwide famine and death would ensue. This means anarchy, lawlessness, and the complete breakdown of societal norms and power structures as people simply did whatever they could to avoid starvation. It's a whole different game when you're just fighting to eat enough. The bread rides at King's Landing again come to mind, times a thousand, times a million, really. It's simply what would happen if the sun were to be hidden from sight for several years. I mean, no sun means no food, no anything. Society would be reduced to the Stone Age.
3: And worse. Much worse, probably. (laughs) Yeah, the worst part of the Stone Age. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so it's, it's like the Stone Age, except for there's no sun. Good luck. <laughs> Do your best. Good luck out there. So knowing all of that, we can then infer several things. Not much in the way of knowledge of history would have made its way through the cultural bottleneck of the Long Night. Hardly any groups, orders, or establishments would have survived intact. Even religions would be cast off, as the gods would have seemed to have turned their back on mankind utterly as the legend of the Maiden Maid of Light and the Lion of Night suggests. And that, of course, is the legend from the East of the Great Empire of the Dawn. Therefore, it is likely that that most existing orders or establishments or great houses, which currently exist now, were created after the Long Night, as mankind was getting up off the mat and reorganizing itself. Something like the Citadel smacks of this to me. It seems like a repository where the survivors of the Long Night might have banded together, ...to pool what knowledge they had saved through the disaster and make sure they, you know, had it all in one place and save for the future. And in fact, I know this contradicts the accepted timeline, but I don't think very much of the accepted timeline. <laughs> <laughs> and I tend to think that most of the tales of the legendary founders of the great houses from the age of heroes... refer to events which took place during and after the Long Night, and that the more mythical tales from the Dawn Age sound more like the clouded memories that the survivors of the Long Night might have retained of the time before the fall of society. In some cases, there's bound to be overlap, as the survivors who established new houses after the, Long Night rece- uh, after the Long Night receded, they very well may have taken names for themselves after the ancestors and heroes from before. But my point is that the people who were lords and kings before the Long Night would have been very unlikely to maintain their hold on power through the Long Night. New lords and kings would have been established afterward, though, surely, and that's when I suspect we should see someone like Bran the Builder appear to found a great house and build lots of impressive things for the new world. This means that the Night's Watch, which seems to have its origins rooted in the Long Night itself, may well be the oldest institution of any kind in all of Westeros, excepting the Green Seers and perhaps the Sacred Order of the Green Men on the Isle of Faces, whatever they are. Now, the world of ice and fire more or less tells the same story, saying that the world after the Long Night was a broken place, and that the Great Empire did not reform, and that the survivors were suspicious of one another, scattered, and separated. In the wake of the Great Empire's fragmentation, new empires and kingdoms then sprang up, and the same thing would have happened in Westeros. Which is all a really long and hopefully interesting way of saying that we cannot know how many different people came to ancient Westeros before the Long Night, only that the people who made it through to the other side of this bottleneck eventually came to be known as the First Men. Bam.
0: There were potentially thousands of years of human activity in Westeros before the slate got wiped clean by the Long Night, and the Great Empire of the Dawn, Mariners, and dragon riders could have come to Old Town at any point in that time, either before any First Men were there, or while First Men were there, or both. If any of the people from the East decided to stay or had offspring with the natives, they would now simply be considered First Men.
2: And we say a lot of these things with only relative certainty, but being uncertain doesn't mean the idea is tinfoil or crackpot or anything like that. Take a second to consider your own ancestors, and I don't mean your grandparents or, or even their grandparents. I mean go back as far as you can to, a, to when humankind was living in caves. Point being, we all have ancestry that cannot be traced back to a certain point. You could go back as far as the records go, but eventually you'd get to a time where there are no records. A point where the certainty of history fades into the impenetrable haze of the never recorded. That point where the historical record falls off comes in different places for different people in real life, but in Westeros, often it's the Long Night that makes that benchmark. It's probably, if we wanna make a real world pal- parallel to the Long Night, it works to use the meteor that killed the dinosaurs, combined with the, something like the European Dark Ages where knowledge was lost and there's no history. And it helps round out the picture of all that, what we would call a planetary reset button. Hmm. As far as we're told, the vast majority of what we know of as First Men were bronze-wielding, hide-wearing, primitive men capable of building modest structures, farms, and ring forts and the like. Nothing too fancy. So it's really hard to imagine how they could have made something like Moat Kaelin with its gigantic cottage-sized blocks or the base of the high tower with its fused black stone. Those things are just well beyond anything else they created, but may well have been possible for an advanced people like the Great Empire of the Dawn, or at least might be possible with their knowledge and techniques if somehow some Westerosi had learned or been taught them.
0: Yeah. In fact, some of the figures of the Dawn Age and the Age of Heroes do sound rather godlike, living for very long periods of time like the god emperors of the Great Empire were said to have lived perhaps some of these might be memories of an advanced people who were present in ancient westeros before the collapse or perhaps their larger-than-life descendants or even just people who learned something of their magic one has to think of bran the builder who is associated with two mysterious structures which are both said to have warding spells woven into them storm's end and the wall Now, he's also said to have planned out the final version of the High Tower, which sits atop the Fused Stone Fortress, which is not itself magical, but worthy of mention nonetheless.
3: That's right, and even when we shift the focus away from structures which seem to have been made with some amount of magic, we see other signs of advanced building construction in ancient Westeros, which are very hard to attribute to the First Men. And here we are speaking of round towers. Sounds, uh... Very, you know, blasé. Very, not blasé, but very bland. Whoa. Very... Yeah, why
2: are round towers so interesting?
3: <laughs> exactly. Well, it turns out round towers are supposed to be a construction style only brought to Westeros by the Andals. The maesters bring this up several times in the World of Ice and Fire, and Jamie mentions it as well in A Dance with Dragons. From Jamie, won A Dance
1: with Dragons. Raventree Hall was old. Moss grew thick between its ancient stones, spider-webbing up its walls like the veins in a crone's legs. Two huge towers flanked the castle's main gate, and smaller ones defended every angle of its walls. All were square. Drum towers and half-moons held up better against catapults, since thrown stones were more apt to deflect off a curved wall, but Raven Tree predated that particular bit of builder's wisdom.
2: That so-called builder's wisdom is exactly the kind of knowledge that gets lost when a civilization suffers a complete collapse like the Long Night, or even something not as big as the Long Night could cause that. But the descendants of those relative few who survived the catastrophe might later consider those round towers and say, oh, look, that's cool. Look what our ancestors built so long ago. And over time, they might try to copy that building style. But They might not be able to. They might not figure it out. And they may not know why round is important. They might just think, oh, round? Eh, Let's just do square. That's easier.
3: They they don't know exactly. That's kind of wisdom that they lost. But there's a fly in the ointment, or perhaps a few flies in the ointment, because there are several round tower structures which are said to date back to the Dawn Age, or the Age of Heroes, which would be thousands of years before the Andals came to Westeros with their clever round tower building technique. (laughs) Castle Pike is one, The First Keep of Winterfell is another, and perhaps most notably, we have Storm's End, which is probably the most advanced of the three. Check out this quote from the World of Ice and Fire about Storm's End. From the Stormlands,
1: the World of Ice and Fire. Storm's End is surely an old castle. But when compared to the ruined ring forts of the First Men, or even the First Keep of Winterfell, which a past maester in service to the Starks examined and found to have been rebuilt so many times that a precise dating could not be made. The great tower and perfectly joined stones of the Storm's End curtain wall seemed much beyond what the first men were capable of for thousands of years. The great effort involved in raising the wall was one thing, but that was more a brute effort than the high art needed to make a wall where even the wind cannot find purchase
2: as we can see the round tower design of the first keep is less conclusive because it has been rebuilt many times but storm's end poses quite the mystery the maesters do mention the possibility that storm's end could have been rebuilt many times also with its final round form being devised by the andals But they have no evidence to suggest this other than the mystery of the round design itself. It's kind of like, well, who else could it be? And even the Andals never built anything described quite like Storm's End, so it just doesn't work. (laughs) Toss in the idea that magic might have been involved in its creation, which the Andals aren't associated with at all, and we have to acknowledge the possibility that the legends are right, and Storm's End and its round tower really do date back to thousands of years before the Andals came over, the remnant of some lost architectural knowledge. As for Castle Pike and its round tower, there is
3: a lot of evidence which suggests that it too is very, very old. We'll get to that in a moment. All of this taken together suggests that somebody other than the people we think of as First Men were, in ancient Westeros, building amazing things, whether it was the Great Empire of the Dawn, or someone else, or some combination of both. We can be fairly confident in this, because they left us their stone handiwork, which cannot be explained by the accepted timeline of Westerosi history, which I have so little regard for. Hear <laughs> uh, that? He hates Westeros
2: history. Oh, hey! <laughs> oh no! no. Say it. So. He has no regard for the history of Westeros.
3: No, no, I mean, it's the timeline. It's the timeline I hate.
0: I give you guys money every month. <laughs> 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 But it's not just archaeological evidence, of course. What about genetic evidence? We will never know what outstanding bloodlines went it's extinct, thanks to the Long Night. But the question we are concerned with is this. Is it possible that some of these mysterious builders could have left genetic evidence of their presence in a way that would still be recognizable today?
2: Hmm. In the real world, you might be able to look at someone and guess parts of their ancestry, but you certainly can't guess what family they're from. In Westeros, it is... Not common, but also not uncommon for a family to have a distinct look. The most ancient Westerosi noble houses trace themselves to a famous legendary founder from the Age of Heroes. A lot of times this founder has genetic traits that persist even now. We don't fully understand the mechanism for this, and there are plenty of theories out there, including one in our Warewood series, check that out. But it is definitively magical, because, well, George R. R. Martin said so. <laughs> yeah,
0: This means that we see genetic traits passing down over thousands of years. We've already shown one of the best, perhaps the best, example of this with Daenerys and her dream. Even if we're making too much of that dream, there's no denying that her Valyrian looks were passed down from long ago.
2: Right, and just because these traits can be passed down doesn't mean they always are. As we all know, not n- nearly every person with the Targaryen blood is greeted with love at first sight by dragons. We can't all be brown Ben Plum. Poor Quinn. <sighs> ben called it a drop a dragon, and Tyrion understood this concept from his research. He knew... The dragon's like Ben because Ben has a Targaryen ancestor. Blood of the dragon can linger through many generations. In danny 's case, it could be, it could easily be as potent as her ancestors thousands of years ago due to whatever magic resides in her genes, combined with good old-fashioned incest, of course, because without the incest, the gene clearly shows itself less often. We said it can linger. Not that it always does. Again, poor Quentin.
3: Yes, yes, poor Quentin. What's interesting is that, uh, Brown Ben has talks about a drop of dragon, whereas Quentin became a bite of frog because right before the dragon roasted him, he said, I'm turning back into frog again because frog is his nickname. So I guess you could say that dragons are frog eaters.
2: <laughs> Long way to
3: go for a frog eater joke, but I'm always looking for frog eaters. So jokes, dragons so. originate
2: from the marshes um, and the Kranachmen? Is that what
3: you're saying? Uh, get thee to Reddit <laughs> with thy crackpot, sir. <laughs> Now, roughly similar in nature to the idea of the blood of the dragon being passed down over centuries and even eons, is the example of the Green Seer gene and its cousin the skin changer gene. Skin changers are more common by far, and all the Stark kids, including John having it, cannot be called a coincidence. Now the Starks may have always had this blood, or they may have gotten it when a Stark took to wife the daughter of the Warg King, who was obviously a warg, and on another occasion he took to wife the daughter of the Marsh King who was obviously a mar- no, 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 <laughs> not a Marsh. The Marsh Kings were actually chosen for their Green seer abilities, so the daughter of the Marsh King may very well have contained the Green Seer gene. Now, whatever the case, they still have it, the Starks, that is, just as the blood of the dragon and the high fantasy look still run in Danny's family after thousands of years.
0: So basically, we don't understand how any of this works, but it's all tied to bloodlines.
3: Right, and what we can say is that in A Song of Ice and Fire, Magical traits can be passed down over incredible lengths of time. Therefore, it may be possible that genetic descendants of the Great Empire of the Dawn might have identifiable characteristics which we can pick up on now. If we cross-check that logic with enough evidence, a little bit of rational analysis, we might have something solid here. What we
2: did was to take a look around at other persistent genetic traits that could trace all the way back to the great empire or other ancients, just long in the past, while paying attention to the stories of those founders. Those stories are often given as explanations for some of the famous structures we've discussed as well. As we mentioned in regards to Old Town's origins, the Black Fused Stone base of the high tower indicates some kind of permanence, meaning those responsible for it probably didn't just come, build something incredible using techniques rarely used elsewhere in the history of the world, and then just leave. <laughs> Whenever human civilizations come together in the real world, many things happen, right? Fighting, trade, disease, but more relevantly here making babies they couple up you know settlers and soldiers fought the Native Americans here in the U.S. but long before those wars ended there were mixed race babies on both sides like it just happens you know Mm -hmm. both sides women were having children with both sides men this is true even if you go forward in time where modern U.S. soldiers or other soldiers doesn't have to be U.S. obviously where they're deployed in some foreign base and find someone they like amongst the locals a lot of times that results in kids or marriage or both and if you go back in time wow it gets even crazier supposedly something like as high as one in 500 modern Chinese people have Genghis Khan's DNA wow right yeah no I'm not making that up (laughs) Macedonians who followed alexander the great thousands of miles from europe had children with countless peoples across wide swaths of asia and these would be the children of both soldiers and high officers provincial governors and administrators all walks of life so the gene pool of all these places got large injections of macedonia spread (laughs) around this example could give a partly incorrect impression though so let me back it up just a little bit it's a good time to remind you all that the great empire wouldn't have been just one race like the macedonians as we said earlier, the ruling class might have been, but even that is not certain. Rome again? Good example. At least the later empire of Rome, because that's when they had the kind of parallel we're looking for, which is a wide variety amongst the emperors of ethnicity, skin colors, even a few that weren't born into the nobility. So whenever we use the phrase people of the great empire or something along those lines, it's, it's like what we're saying With the First Men. It's a generic, broad term, not referring to just one ethnic or cultural group. Thus, it's easy to see how at least one of these many peoples that comprise the Great Empire of the Dawn could have contributed to the gene pool of Westeros, if not more than one, (laughs) but at least one. It's just really easy to see. Being the smart watchners that you are, many of you have probably already made a guess as to the potential bloodline that we think is the most likely to have Great Empire of the Dawn roots, and that is, of course, House Dane. And No, it's not because the sword Dawn relates to Great Empire of the Dawn. But that said, Dawn the Sword is absolutely relevant here, just for other reasons.
3: Right, and we needn't repeat the evidence as laid out in our Dane episodes because you can go back and watch that episode. So highly recommend (laughs) it. Yes, I thought it was good. Uh, So Mm -hmm. we'll just remind you of the bottom line, which is their near Valerian looks are not Valerian in origin and Dawn is not Valerian steel, even though it's described as being identical except for color. But the similarities are super obvious in both cases. The assumption that the Danes have a Targaryen ancestor or three was so prevalent that George flat out had to clarify this himself.
0: Thanks for that, George.
3: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, that was an important clarification. <laughs> Which leads us to the same thought process that we used for the five forts and the base of the high tower, and the dragons prior to Valyria. If the Valyrians aren't the ancestors of this house, House Dane, then where did their rare yet persistent genetic traits come from? Now, there's this old bit of wisdom that says extraordinary claims require
2: extraordinary evidence. We've all heard that before, I think. And if not, it, it certainly makes sense we agree with that statement that sentiment and the logic here applies in a number of other relevant ways extraordinary swords require extraordinary makers and <laughs> extraordinary genetics require extraordinary genes so again who else could it be these are extraordinary circumstances needing extraordinary answers so that's why we're down on the possibility of another ancient dragon lord civilization right like this just <laughs> it just makes makes more sense to me it boils down to it, one was more likely than multiples because it's just so advanced what's necessary here to explain these things. We've got a magic and dragons and advanced archaeology, I mean, uh, building technology, etc. So we think that all these things being in commonality, it's just it, the Great Empire did all these things. So why assume there's a second
3: empire or a second large civilization that did all these things? Yeah, it's like gee whiz, man. We're already giving you one hidden race of dragon lords. What else do you want?
0: Yeah, we know it was the First Order.
3: <laughs> <laughs> now uh Don, the sword is supposedly forged from a meteor fragment of course it has p- unearthly pale coloring and otherwise it resembles valerian steel yet it dates back to the same time when the first men supposedly couldn't even make regular steel or even good enough iron to really make swords with
2: if Dawn turns out to be light ringer it would be poetic we'll say and it would fit well with the existing legends from the far east a black stone fell from the sky and a villainous emperor's worship of it caused the long night the long night was in turn defeated by a hero wielding a blade made from a white stone that fell from the sky a sword named dawn to end the long night it almost makes too much sense the problem with the dawn equals lightbringer theories again comes down to distance like we mentioned before how does lightbringer a sword heard of in myth from far eastern Essos come to Westeros to become the ancestral sword of House Dane. Well, for the first time, we have a plausible explanation for how that could have happened. Yes, it's
3: a conveyor belt of plausibility from Ashai to Westeros. (laughs) Now, the case for House Dane as a descendant of the Great Empire is strengthened by the fact that it happens to be very near Battle Isle and its few stone fortress, like very close. And, uh... The Fewstone Fortress, of course, at Battle Isle, is where we have the strongest indicator of Dawn Age Dragonlord presence. But what about the people who actually lived in the tower, built on top of the Fewstone Fortress? Could they have some great Empire of the Dawn lineage? From the Reach, the world of ice and
1: fire, the reasons for the abandonment of the fortress and the fate of its builders, whoever they might have been, are likewise lost to us. But at some point, we know the Battle Isle, and its great stronghold, came into the possession of the ancestors of House Hightower. Were they first men, as most scholars believe today?
0: It's hard to tell. One of the obvious things to check is what they look like. Martin has kept this somewhat hazy, but only somewhat. We only catch sight of one high tower, Allery. That's Mace Tyrell's wife and mother to Marjorie, Loris, Garland, and Willis. She is 41 at the most and just so happens to have silver hair. Some interpret this as gray hair, but that's awfully young for a full change from, say, brown or blonde, generally speaking. No eye color is given for her, and all her children look like Tyrell's. But there is one other example, though it's not one that we get a direct look at. Still, it's a pretty good clue. Sir Jorah Mormont's wife was Luness Hightower, who he famously suggested had a look similar to none other than Daenerys herself. Maybe he just meant things like height and frame and facial features, and we shouldn't assume Lynesse had purple eyes or something. But with one silver-haired Hightower mentioned already, Dora's ex may have had that proto-Valyrian hair gene.
2: How about that? <laughs> the idea that House Hightower has ties to the area that seemed to date before the Long Night is suggested here. From the Reach, the world of ice and fire. Or did they, mayhaps, descend
1: from the seafarers and traders who had settled at the top of whispering sound in earlier epochs? The men who came before the first men, we cannot know. When first glimpsed in the pages of history, the high towers are already kings, ruling Old Town from Battle Isle. The early High Towers lived amidst the gloomy halls, vaults, and chambers of the strange stone below.
2: There's a key phrase the men who came before the first men, just like we've been saying. So the door is wide open for the High Towers to
3: have blood ties to the Great Empire. That's right. And I mean, they're saying it flat out. The High Towers might descend from people who were not Westerosi, so to speak, people who came there by sea and built a few stone fortress. Who could that be? And mm-hmm. although we haven't seen enough Hightowers to form any strong conclusions based on their looks, call them tentative conclusions, we don't even get a description of Gerald Hightower's hair or eyes, unbelievably. There is some interesting symbolic evidence which kind of says dragon. First, the founder of Hightower, Uthor Hightower, has a name which seems like a call-out to King Arthur, whose father's name is Uther Pendragon. That's Uther with an E-R instead of an O-R, but, you know, close enough. Now, the word Pendragon means head dragon. And, of course, King Arthur is known for his, at times, blindingly bright magic sword, Excalibur, something George seems to be borrowing from a bit, uh, you know, here and there with his Legend of Lightbringer. And although we know the stone Arthur pulled Excalibur from was an oily... Hey, who wrote that? (laughs) just kidding just kidding <laughs> now naming the high tower uthor is basically a, a pretty suggestive of a people with dragon names and shining magic swords now secondly the high towers rule from atop a white tower with a flame on top which is also their sigil quote a stepped white tower crowned with fire on a smoke gray field in a song of ice and fire towers are often conflated with swords just as with the tower at starfall which is named the pale stone sword and with the White Sword Tower in King's Landing, where the King's Guard keep their quarters, House High Tower's official words are "We light the way," and that adds to the picture, putting us in mind of Lightbringer in the words of the Night's Watch vows about being a sword in the darkness and the light that brings the dawn. The flaming High Tower, which lights the way, is therefore more than a little suggestive of a flaming sword which lights the way, if you know what I mean, and I know you do. Yeah. There's one passage in *A Feast for Crows*. Where the shadow of the High Tower is described as cutting the city like a sword, which is a sort of passage I generally like to analyze for double meaning or triple. Now, or triple meaning, yes. <laughs> the last bit of symbolic evidence, which would uh, would be their official House High Tower dress code, which is associated with fire. A ship captain in service to the High Tower wears a quote smoke gray cloak with a border of red satin flames. In a feast for crows which sounds kind of like the clothing of Melisandre and the priests of Valor, oddly enough.
0: Another fascinating and very relevant thing to know about House Hightower is that they have always just long been associated with magic, and particularly of the darker variety. They are hardly mentioned in the appendices of the first three books, but in the appendix of A Feast for Crows, House Hightower gets a big old section about their history, dating back to the Dawn Age, including this line.
1: From the Reach, the world of ice and fire. Subtle and sophisticated, they have always been great patrons of learning and the faith. And it is said that certain of them have also dabbled in alchemy, necromancy, and other sorcerous arts.
3: Necromancy? Really? (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of thing we'd expect from the Bloodstone Emperor. Or the others. Seriously evil stuff. Now, even if that part is exaggeration, there is surely some truth to the general idea that the high towers have a long history with the magical arts. We know that is still true to this day, as the same ship's captain in service to the high tower famously tells Sam in a feast for crows that Lord Leighton's locked atop his tower
1: with the mad maid, consulting books of spells, maybe
3: he'll raise an army from the deeps or not. That's got to be one of the weirdest lines in the whole series. Lord Hightower is going to summon the Deep Ones? Or not? Let's hope not.
0: Let's hope yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm not so sure hope about
3: not. hope not. <laughs> well, as as someone who sympathizes with people that live in Old Town, I, I would hope not. But yeah, I guess, <laughs> too, I guess secretly I do want to see <laughs> the Deep Ones invade. But whatever the case, it would seem that the Hightowers may have an unbroken tradition of magical experimentation going back thousands of years, which is pretty amazing. That kind of darker sorcery generally comes from the eastern parts of the world in A Song of Ice and Fire. We really don't hear much of it in the way of sorcery in the tales of the First Men that isn't directly related to the Children of the Forest. But a great empire of the Dawn ancestry for House Hightower could account for this history with the Dark Hearts, however. That's pretty much
2: it for House Hightower. And all in all, it seems like a fairly strong contender, perhaps not as strong as House Dane, but... Strong. Up there.
0: Yeah. Now, as we move on to a couple of other possible descendants of the Great Empire, we'd like to turn the focus back to the fact that these more advanced men who built the Fused Stone Fortress are referred to as seafarers and traders. It is sensible to conclude that these seafarers would make it to places that the other First Men did not. The First Men, when speaking in general terms, are widely known to be non-seafaring on the whole. But we're not speaking in general terms, we're looking, as much as we can, at different groups of First Men, and the Hightower and Old Town are based around shipping. The
2: Hightower is a giant lighthouse, after all, Mm -hmm. what does that tell you? (laughs) (laughs) And we as readers can see a lot of things that the Maesters and other characters cannot. What I mean is that within the confines of the story, it's rare to find someone like Marwyn the Mage, or better yet, Lomas Longstrider, someone who can actually speak directly to physical evidence, someone who has seen all the things we're trying to compare that lie so far apart. There's a rare example of such here that both sheds light on and confuses our efforts to decode these ancient mysteries. It comes to us from, of all places, a maester born on the Iron Islands. From the Reach, the world of
1: ice and fire, Theron noted a certain likeness between the black stone of the ancient fortress and that of the sea stone chair, the high seat of House Greyjoy of Pike whose origins are similarly ancient and mysterious. Theron's rather inchoate manuscript, Strange Stone, postulates that both fortress and seat might be the work of a queer, misshapen race of half-men sired by creatures of the salt seas upon human women. These Deep Ones, as he names them, are the seed from which our legends of merlings are grown, he argues, whilst their terrible fathers are the truth behind the drowned god of the ironborn.
2: Well, damn. All in this one paragraph, quote here, we have a purported link between the oily black stone of the Seastone Chair and the fused black stone of the high tower, which we said we didn't have any connections between, and a suggestion of yet another ancient race's bloodlines in the mix, and a suggestion linking all of those things together. But to be fair, unlike the other maesterly claims, this one is not held in high regard. It's called Fanciful by Yandel. Earlier we suggested the idea that the oily stone might be fused stone gone bad somehow? Cursed or tainted? If so, that might explain why Maester Theron sees similarities. We also discussed the possibility that the greasy stone is partly explained by vitrification, which is essentially what happens to stone when you blast it with dragon fire, but do not attempt to shape it. (laughs) If this is the case, it would also explain the similarity Theron is noticing. Regarding the queer, misshapen race from the Salt Seas, on the other hand, This is also the most direct Cthulhu reference of all. The Deep Ones are an H.P. Lovecraft invention. His name's popped up a lot this episode, huh? (laughs) And they indeed breed with humans to create hybrid fishy frog people. They're a lovely bunch, truly. More (laughs) of
0: that hybrid.
2: Yep, there we go, hybrid. (laughs) There are many legends of undersea races from a variety of cultures. Dick Crab's squisher stories are by far my favorite. But there are also straight-up examples. Something is up with the people of the Thousand Islands, for example. Something fishy. (laughs) The people, in quotes, people, living near the Toadstone, which is also oily, may I remind you, share this hybrid aspect. But the closest to home might be Lord Godric Burrell of Sweet Sister, whom Davos meets on his way to White Harbor, if you recall. That guy has webbed fingers and says it runs in his family.
3: That's real creepy. (laughs) On the sketchier side, we have that line about Lord Hightower getting ready to maybe summon an army from the deeps and also Cotter Pike's creepy references to dead things in the water at Hardhome. Could we actually see one of these fish people? I don't think we'll be seeing an invasion of Deep Ones or their spawn. I don't mean to disappoint you, but it just seems a little little out of nowhere. But uh, they are impossible to ignore, especially when discussing strange stone and ancient castles. And it is another example that ancient bloodlines and sometimes special traits associated with them can linger for thousands of years. If what Maester Theron suggests is true, the Drowned God is a deep one himself,
2: and all the Iron Islands have this hybrid blood in them. That would be even closer to home than Lord Godric Borell, because the Iron Islands are a bigger part of the story than Mm. the sisters. Given the other examples, we can't doubt the fishy connection to some races of the world. I mean, we can see these fishy, froggy races out there, like I said, on the Thousand Islands and some other places. It's because of these obvious physical traits. We can't deny that the, that they're real. The high towers in do too, fishical mm, traits. No, <laughs> <laughs> Arthur
3: Dane just became a Merling.
2: Yeah. They, they, they don't have the fishical traits, but they do have some sort of ancient genetics going on there. And the ironborn, however, and this is where it's a little weird because they don't have any kind of weird look to them. They look pretty normal. They don't have any sort of iron. There's no ironborn look. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Since the idea of the fish hybrid ancestry isn't accepted by maesters at large, it's only this kind of fringe theory by maester Theron... We tend to agree with the other masters because there's no manifestation. There's no, there aren't even ironborn with with webbed fingers that we know of, but we can entertain other less fishy ideas.
3: <laughs> as for those less fishy ideas, we have more stone because the castle of Pike itself, like the High Tower, is old enough that some believe it was already there when men first came to the isles as well. In fact, the same page from the World of Ice and Fire talking about this. Gives us the only other direct suggestion of non first men ancestry that we have, with the first being the suggestion that the high towers descended from those seafaring traders. In fact, this is actually the first paragraph of the whole Ironborn section. From the Iron Islands, the world of ice and fire. Were the
1: first men truly first? Most scholars believe they were. Before their coming, it is thought, Westeros belonged to the giants, the children of the forest, and the beasts of the field. But on the Iron Islands, the priests of the Drowned God tell a different
2: tale. The priests of the Drowned God are talking about a Merling ancestry here, which we've already covered. But we're interested in suggesting that the First Men were not first. First. The main series piece of evidence for this is the fact that the First Men were known to have very little in the way of seafaring skill, while the Ironborn are expert mariners and shipwrights. Once again, the Great Empire of the Dawn could be the missing link. Another maester, Harragh, expands on the idea of the Ironborn descending from mysterious ancient seafarers. From the Iron Islands, the world of ice and fire,
1: Archmaester Harreg once advanced the interesting notion... That the ancestors of the Ironborn came from some unknown land west of the Sunset Sea, citing the legend of the Sea Stone Chair. The throne of the Greyjoys, carved into the shape of a kraken from an oily black stone, was said to have been found by the first men when they first came to Old Wick. Hareg argued that the chair was a product of the first inhabitants of the islands, and only the later histories of maesters and septons alike began to claim that they were in fact descended of the first men. But this is the purest speculation, and in the end, Hareg himself dismissed the idea, and
3: so must we. And there you have it, ancient mariners. We saw at the King's Moot that the kooky folks from the Lonely Light, who might be skin changers, still tell tales of this lost land to the west of the Sunset Sea. I've heard those same tales on Reddit. But if the Great Empire of the Dawn had sailed north from Old Town and then come upon the Iron Islands, they could have very easily been remembered simply as the people who came from the Sunset Sea, giving rise to the idea that they actually came from, you know, some forgotten land from the west."
0: It's worth noting that the seastone chair, unlike all the other strange stone examples, is small enough to have been moved there by ship or perhaps even raised from the depths.
3: Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the seastone chair is no more than a fancy designer statue imported from a shy, where that sort of thing is super common. Case closed. Heck, you can find those things at Cost Plus World Market now, I think. Little little Kraken statues, you know? Definitely, definitely. In any case, we should also mention that we lied. When we said that there wasn't much in the way of references to dark sorcery among the First Men legends that didn't have to do with the magic of Green Seers, apart from that of House Hightower, because there is actually a smattering of dark magic ideas among the folk tales of the Ironborn. But of course, they might not be First Men, and that's kind of the point. The role of Ice and Fire mentions the likes of Dagon Drum, the Necromancer, and Balin Blackskin, who supposedly had enchanted armor-like skin. That armor-like skin could have been Valerian steel armor, who knows? And maybe they're just folktales, but maybe there's a kernel of truth there, a hint at ancestors who practiced a different kind of magic than was known to the First Men, one having to do with necromancy. Speaking in terms of logistics, the Iron Islands are probably too close geographically to Old Town
2: to have been unknown to the people in that area for very long. They're too, too big. <laughs> if not found by ships eventually... A little crackpotty, but maybe if there were dragons in that area, they would have been the first to find that, you know, mm. scouting the area, et cetera. Mm, it's mm. possible. Take a look. Following the coastline gets you all to all these locations we've mentioned. Starfall is an island, too, Prayer recall. Of course, we can't know for sure if all these places were settled by peoples of the Great Empire of the Dawn, but the point is not to prove anything. Rather, we are trying to see if there's a coherent possibility suggested by the evidence and to draw attention to all of this stuff in, in general, because it's just really cool. And the legends of the ancient mariners at Old Town and the Iron Islands both are the kind of thing we're looking for. Put that together with everything we know about House Dane, and we might be looking at the fingerprints of the Great Empire of the Dawn. Other legendary figures associated with the Age of Heroes were probably just that. Figures. Stories. But maybe one or two of them are based on real people. Some who were outstanding in their own time, but exaggerated massively after the Long Night and the intervening eons. We've mentioned the three strongest contenders to be descendants of the Great Empire, the Danes, the High Towers, and the Ironborn. But there are a couple of others worth mentioning,
3: even if the evidence is
2: less strong.
3: Yes, and for all you lovers of tinfoil out there, first up, we have the Lannisters. That's right, the Lannisters. Yeah. For, golden tinfoil. For three <laughs> reasons, yes, golden tinfoil. First, their hair is always described as golden, never blonde. And in fact, there's a whole conversation about how people from Lannisport may have blonde hair, but not truly golden hair. The hair of the Valerians and the Kingly Ghost with Gemstone Eyes and Danny's Dream, which seem like they represent the rulers of the Great Empire of the Dawn, are also described as having hair of gold, silver, and platinum white. Second reason, the Lannisters got their golden hair from Lan the Clever, who is said to have come from the East. That's all it says, from the East, which is pretty vague, but it does suggest a non-Westerosi origin. And finally, Castelley Rock does lie on the coast in between Old Town and the Iron Islands, which is at least in the right location.
2: I suppose you might raise an eyebrow at the green eyes of the Lannisters, which are sometimes described as being luminescent or like emeralds, with Tywin's eyes even being flecked with gold. It's not an exact match to anything, but it does sound a bit extraordinary and potentially speaks to an unusual genetic lineage unique to House Lannister. It may sound thin to connect permanent green eyes and golden hair to the Great Empire. That's not a whole lot to go on. But given that there are large holes in the standard land-was-an-Andal story, such as the Andals being misplaced at that point in time, they didn't come along for thousands of years later. So other theories definitely are appropriate, even if we can't get a definitive answer. And Castle Rock, it's a marvel, perhaps. Because someone more advanced had a hand in it, can you really see
3: those Ringfort making first men making really rock? So the other, the uh, there's one other bloodline that we should mention, and that would be the bloodline of the folks who supposedly built Storm's End, House Durendon, which was later taken over by House Baratheon when Bors Baratheon took the daughter of the last Storm King to wife, who was obviously a storm. <laughs> 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 now the blue eyes of the Baratheons, which were inherited from House Durindon. Are they an outstanding enough trait to perhaps suspect an ancient powerful ancestor? Well, they claim it's during God's grief who stood up to the gods themselves, not notably the old gods, but perhaps something akin to the storm god or gods, and he was said to live 1,000 years. Could there be some truth behind this legendary figure relating to the mysteries that we've discussed today? Although we've mentioned that Storm's End was supposedly
2: made with ancient spells and that its construction style is hard to attribute to the First Men, there is really nothing to connect them with the Great Empire of the Dawn, not directly. However, we do have this very strange quote from A Clash of Kings about the building of Storm's End, which makes an eyebrow or two go up, I think, given what we've talked about today anyway. Catelyn here is recalling the entire tale of Durin God's grief and Eleni, who is a daughter of the gods, which gods, the Storm God in this case, which ends with Durin building a seventh castle that the wind and sea gods could not destroy.
1: From Catelyn III, A Clash of Kings. A seventh castle he raised, most massive of all. Some said the children of the forest helped him build it, shaping the stones with magic. Others claimed that a small boy told
3: him what he must do. A boy that would grow to be Bran the Builder. The first part of this quote is so weird that nobody has ever really even noticed it. Children of the forest, building castles, shaping stones with magic. That sounds a bit like the magical few stone building process, but that makes no rational sense in the hands of the children of the forest, does it? Undoubtedly, there is confusion in the myths here, but it's also hard to simply dismiss this wholesale. Now, if I had to take a stab in the dark, no, don't twist my arm, I'll talk, I'll talk, I would guess that perhaps the very precisely shaped and aligned blocks of the round curtain wall of Storm's End, perhaps set in place with some level of spellcraft, might have been a successful attempt to mimic the fused stone building style by people who did not have dragon fire to work with, sometime shortly after the long night. Again, I wonder if Bran the Builder might have been a person that retained some, bit of tiny, uh, some tiny bit of knowledge of the Great Empire's building techniques after the Long Night and then helped people get back on their feet in a couple of different places. Now, while it's hard to reconcile the Children of the Forest with knowledge of masonry, it is possible that they lend the magical element to the process, since Storm's End is said to be set with old spells. If so, the God's Grief wasn't very grateful, Because he was said to have taken the rainwood from the children of the forest, though his son supposedly gave it back. Part 5 The New
2: Long Night. There's one more potential legacy of the Great Empire of the Dawn left to us, and it's quite possibly the most important of all because it connects them to the main plot. It's also why we saved it for last. Everything we've discussed so far, however interesting, is primarily backstory material. It's absolutely fascinating to ponder the idea of dragonlords from a shai that came before the Valyrians, and anything we can piece together about dawn age Westeros is equally fascinating. But so far, none of this really has a lot to do with the main story of A Song of Ice and Fire, or better yet, the conclusion of the story. All that changes when we consider the last hero and his blade of dragon steel.
3: That's right. Many people have noticed the similarities between The Last Hero and Azora High because they are inescapable. They are both said to have literally fought and repelled the darkness of the Long Night with a sword. Azor High with his red flaming sword known as Lightbringer, and The Last Hero with his blade described mysteriously as Dragonsteel. In the annals of the Night's Watch, uncovered by Sam in A Storm of Swords, we learn that The Last Hero was specifically said to slay others with his blade of Dragonsteel, as a way of fighting the long night. The figure of Azor Ahai is generally associated with dragons, and the last hero has a sword named after dragons in some sense or another. Jon Snow's dream in A Dance with Dragons adds fuel to the fire, (laughs) (laughs) merging the last hero and Azor Ahai in a kind of nightmare that he has about defending the wall. From John 12,
1: A Dance with Dragons. Stand fast, Jon Snow called. Throw them back! He stood atop the wall, alone. Flame! he cried. Feed them flame! But there was no one to pay heed. They are all gone. They have abandoned me. Burning shafts hissed upward, trailing tongues of fire. Scarecrow brothers tumbled down, black cloaks ablaze. Snow! an eagle cried. As foemen scuttled up the ice like spiders, John was armored in black ice, but his blade burned red in his fist. As the dead men reached the top of the wall, he sent them down to die again.
2: It's easy to explain this dream as a product of John's subconscious. He's the Lord Commander in charge of the Wall, he's worried about the Others, he's reading about how to fight them and hearing Melisandre speak of Azor Ahai and Lightbringer, and his mind turned it all into a crazy dream. Nevertheless, dreams and prophecies, however treacherous, not to be discarded in A Song of Ice and Fire, they often have a lot of meaning. And this dream places Jon in the role of last hero. I mean, he's defending the Wall by himself. Last? Hmm? With a burning red sword that matches the description of Lightbringer. At least, close enough. <laughs> Even without this dream, the parallels between the two heroes who fought the Long Night with a magic sword are pretty obvious, but as with the Dawn Equals Lightbringer theories, the problem has always been distance, as we saw four out of the five parallel versions of the Azor Ahai myth are conclusively sourced to far eastern Essos. How did Azor Ahai and his magic sword get to Westeros? Well, he took the conveyor
3: belt of plausibility.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's a very so, useful
3: conveyor belt. Oh, yes. Yes, it is. It's a long one, too. It's made of a Valerian conveyor belt. <laughs> but uh, the Great Empire, of course, is the missing link here, possibly. So Azor Ahai pops up at the conclusion of the Great Empire story with Lightbringer. So we know there is some sort of connection between the two. We could be talking about Azor Ahai comes to Westeros in the sense of the transmission of common myth from a common ancestor. That's the first idea with the survivors of the Great Empire who came to Westeros bringing their magic sword to end the Long Night story here to be mixed up with our end of the Long Night story, since us, we think from a Westerosi perspective, I say us. The point is, the two stories got combined in Westeros. So maybe the last hero never had Dragonsteel until his myth myth was merged with the Azor Ahai myth sometime in ancient Westeros. Now, the other possibility This is the one I favor, is that the people of the Great Empire of the Dawn actually came to Westeros and brought either magic swords or the knowledge to make magic swords with them, just as the Andals brought their knowledge of castle-building and swordsmithing with them when they came to Westeros. Recall that the gemstone-eyed kingly ghosts in Danny's dream held swords of pale fire, while the hero who led the oppressed people of their empire in rebellion also possessed a flaming sword. Now, granted, some or all of the truth behind these flaming sword and magic sword stories may be metaphorical. We both believe, Aziz and I and Ashaya and many other people, that there is certainly some level of metaphor going on here. But with all the emphasis on magic swords and flaming swords in the main story, it's also possible that there is some truth to the idea of magic swords. So let's consider that possibility. Now, a major piece of evidence is the fact that we have seen magical weapons kill the others. Weapons made of dragonglass, which is frozen fire. Our friend Lady Gwyn from Radio Westeros has speculated about dragon steel being a sword made with dragonglass in some fashion. Either a sword of pure dragonglass or a steel sword made with dragonglass added in. Pointing out that uh, the sword-like description of the glass candles, um, <clears throat> or I should say that Lady Gwyn was pointing at the sword-like description of the glass candles in Feast, and also the extremely sharp nature of obsidian, and a few other things which you can hear about in their Azor High episode. Now clearly, if it were possible to make a sword with dragonglass or of dragonglass, it should kill others, although it's still unclear how or even if killing others would end the long night. The same line of thinking
2: comes up when Sam and Jon speculate as to whether the reference to the last hero's blade of dragon steel might mean Valyrian steel, since it's forged in dragon fire. But of course, Valyria did not exist at the time of the Long Night. So this is not possible, straight up. The answer could be the Great Empire of the Dawn are potential Dawn Age dragon lords. They could be the makers. If they had dragons and few stone, they may very well have had dragon swords. Remember that Valyrian steel swords are magic swords in a very real sense, in that they are described as spell-forged, quote, and unbreakable, right from the beginning of A Game of Thrones. Jon dreams of a sword burning red in his fist, but later in that dream he refers to it as Longclaw, a Valyrian steel sword. We've seen Barric light regular steel on fire with blood magic, his own blood, in fact, but that sword broke when the Hound hit it just right. Or because he hit it really ferociously, <laughs> afraid of the fire. I think we can all agree that a Valyrian steel sword lighting on fire somehow would be pretty awesome and very potent. So make sure to email George that that's what you want to see in the final book. Come on, George. Flaming Valyrian steel swords. That's what we want.
3: I, for one, look at the sword Blackfire as a clue about a black dragon sword lighting on fire. I mean, it's right there in the name. It also reminds me of the idea of frozen fire. A black weapon, once molten and now cooled and hardened, which somehow may have fire locked inside of it. If Valerian Steel slays others, as Dragonglass does, that means that it has some type of fire magic locked inside of it. At least that's that's how I think about it. Obsidian kills others because it has some component of fire magic, which cancels out their ice magic. So the obsidian knife, now when Sam when Sam stabbed the other, it didn't burst into flame, however, Obsidian can give off a kind of flame in the form of a glass candle, and Quaid speaks of pyromancers waking fire from dragonglass. Now, if steel forged in dragonfire slays others, as dragonglass does, maybe it's possible that you could wake fire from them too, though that will no doubt require blood. And in fact, we've again, we've seen Barak do that, so really we're not... Uh, we're not uh, stretching, stretching the plausibility of what's already happened very far with our dream of flaming Valyrian steel. Mm-hmm. The other strong possibility to explain dragon steel is that the dragon they're referring to is the meteor kind. The idea of comets and meteors being symbolized as dragons is very well established, particularly if you listen to the mythical astronomy of ice and fire, mm-hmm. then it's very well established. And if The Last Hero's dragon steel is really the sword Dawn, then it would indeed be comet steel and therefore dragon steel after a fashion. Even the beginning of the Azura High story from the east has a meteor involved, so it's plausible to imagine that Dawn, Lightbringer, and the last hero's dragon steel are all potentially the same sword. If you used meteorite iron and forged it in dragon fire, then everyone would be happy, but maybe that's too much to hope for. The
2: point is however you want to sketch in the details, whatever your own guesses, The Great Empire of the Dawn provides the means by which Azor Ahai and Lightbringer can connect to Westeros and the main plot. Ever since Melisandre and Stannis walked on the page early in A Clash of Kings and started lighting swords on fire and prophesying about the hero with the red sword who will wake dragons from the stone whenever the red star bleeds, yada yada yada. We've all been asking, what does any of that have to do with the main story? Well, it seems to have to do with fighting the others. But the fact that the story of Azor Ahai and the religion which prophesies his return come from the east where there's no others how does that work it seems so disconnected and that's puzzling well if the original Azor Ahai and or the original Lightbringer came to Westeros to fight the others that was their purpose that's why they came in the first place they weren't just wandering and exploring they had a major reason that makes a lot more sense (laughs) and it would mean that Melisandre might have gotten something right after all (laughs) We've discussed that the two strongest contenders for the title of Azor Ahai Reborn are Daenerys and Jon. Dany's case is clear. She actually wakes dragons from stone when the Red Star bleeds and is herself reborn in fire. That's very straightforward. Jon's evidence is less obvious than Dany's, but it's there. And it might become clearer over time. Right now, he's dead-ish. And after he's reborn, we might to see more of these things happen. What we have so far, though, is the dream of his burning red sword and the fact that Melisandre asks to see Azor Ahai and sees only capital S snow. It's bound to be important that John and Danny are the blood of the dragon, some way or another. Azor Ahai Reborn is supposed to wake dragons from stone, so it makes sense for Azor Ahai Reborn to also have a connection or to bond with these dragons, right? We're looking at Danny and John and comparing them to Azor Ahai, but if they're similar to each other, we can look at Azor Ahai and compare him to Danny and John, right? It can go both ways. So Danny has this connection for, to dragons, and John has the potential. The idea that the original Azor Ahai came from the Great Empire of the Dawn, and that he had the blood of the dragon, would explain why all the best candidates for the new Azor Ahai or Azor Ahais, because if Danny and John are both Azor Ahai, that's multiples. But it would explain why they all seem to have blood of the dragon. Why all the candidates have that one important feature?
3: Yes. Now the obvious reason would be that dragons could be a great weapon against the others. Melisandre certainly seems to think it's necessary to wake dragons in order to fight the others and the new long night she fears is coming, and she sees dragons flying above a snowy landscape in her vision of Jon Snow that we just mentioned, implying a battle between the dragons and the others. Danny meanwhile, dreams of riding Drogon and melting her ice-armored enemies on the Trident during a storm of swords, and it's a pretty widely held view that Danny will, at some point, end up fighting the others with her dragons. One of my favorite lines is when Jon muses in a storm of swords that... We should have twenty
1: trebuchets, not two, and they should be mounted on sledges and turntables so we could move them. It was a futile thought. He might as well
3: wish for another thousand men, and maybe a dragon or three. Maybe he'll get what he wished for. Of course, if a beautiful woman with dragons turns up at the wall, you better have something she wants. From Daenerys
1: for A Dance with Dragons. Danny folded her hands together. Words are wind, even words like love and peace. I put more trust in deeds. In my seven kingdoms, knights go on quests to prove themselves worthy of the maiden that they love. They seek
3: for magic swords, for chests of gold, for crowns stolen from a dragon's hoard. That was Danny talking to Hisdar, as Hisdar promises to keep Marine assassination-free for 90 days in order to gain Daenerys' hand in marriage. That's actually what Daenerys wants in this scene, not a magic sword, though she jokingly adds at the end that she may still want a magic sword. Jon has a sword made with dragon fire and sorcery, the magic sword that Danny wants, and she has the dragon or three that Jon was hoping for. Of course, giving someone the sword can mean, well, it uh, can mean a lot of things, so, we'll have to see what comes out when they get together. John and Danny both have Blood of the First Men as well. John is half Stark, of course, and because of Egg's marriage to Black Betha Blackwood, and then three subsequent generations of Targaryen incest, Danny is at least 25% Blackwood. Both Blackwoods and Stark's are skin changer slash greenseer bloodlines, as we know, so perhaps the original Last Hero was similarly descended of both native Westerosi firstmen blood and the blood of the dragon from the Great Empire of the Dawn. Remember that one rumor about these ancient seafarers who came to battle Isle is that they wanted to learn the magic of the Children of the Forest, which suggests an intermingling of greenseer magic and the blood of the dragon, as we have with Jon and Daenerys. And for what it's worth,
2: they both have a bit of Dane blood as well, from Egg's mother, Diana Dane, who married Makar Targaryen. And of course, the Danes are what we consider the best can- candidate for being descendants of the Great Empire of Dawn. And it's even possible that Danny and John have multiple different bloodline connections back to the Great Empire. So there you have it. It really does seem like John and Daenerys are on some sort of collision course, the result of which will most likely be the realization of all this Azor Ahai, Lightbringer, Last Hero, Prince That Was Promised stuff that we've been talking about, that the fandom has been talking about forever. And all of this seems to be history repeating itself, a cycle of events the world has seen before. This time the result might be different though. Instead of the fall of an empire like the great empire of the Dawn and the scattering of the tribes of humankind and a long night that lasts a generation or more, well hopefully a few of our favorites avert that disaster and survive to see the final page in reasonable shape.
3: These potential connections to Westeros and its earliest past create a foundation of parallels spanning the heroes, swords, prophecies, and symbols that are rooted in archaeological, mythological, and genetic evidence. It's the conveyor belt of plausibility. Attempting to uncover some of the important parts of this ancient story provides answers, at least in part, to several of the deeper A Song of Ice and Fire mysteries. The Sword Dawn, the Last Hero's Blade of Dragonsteel, the Origin of the Ironborn, the Weirdness of House Hightower, The seemingly impossible existence of the Five Forts and the Battle Isle Fortress. The anachronistic buildings and structures in Westeros, which cannot be explained by the First Men. The relevance of the Azor Ahai prophecy to the story. The importance of Daenerys' connection to her ancient ancestors and the coming of another long night. All of this has parallels to, if not origins in, the Great Empire of the Dawn.
2: enjoyed our exploration of a song of ice and fire's version of atlantis <laughs> thus expanding your azor AI expertise and we hope we have given you all plenty to talk about which we'll continue with in our q a episode coming up in a couple weeks we like i said it's set for october 20th check the links in this episode description and on our web page and social media to find the exact time and all that and to rsvp to the event and to leave add your own questions if you like Or just leave a comment wherever you watch or listen to this episode and tell us what you think. A lot of people to thank for this episode. Of course, I want to thank David for his return to the show. Thanks, LML. Uh, Tell everybody about your most recent episode, where to find you, and all that.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been quite a lot of fun. I remember when I first emailed you after hearing we were going to do a House Dane episode saying, I have this cool theory about the ancient origins of House Dane you might want to consider including. And then we made three episodes. (laughs) 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 To think, we actually had planned at one time to sandwich this theory at the end of a one-part House Dane episode. And then it was like, oh, well, we better make two House Dane episodes and put the Great Empire of the Dawn stuff in the second episode. Then we made two Dane episodes and still didn't have room for the Great Empire. So then we made those two Dane episodes and set out to make a Great Empire episode, but you insisted that we do the Ashai related material as its own episode since you hadn't done one yet which is now, uh, I think, your most popular video in, uh, on YouTube ever. So, hey, that was a good idea.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
3: and so well, here we are, having done all the groundwork for this theory in other episodes, and we still made a two-hour podcast, or whatever this turns out to be. Yeah, and despite all that, we still have the more material that we're going to cover in the, that Q&A episode. <laughs> so much. Yes, I'm really looking forward to some non-scripted, no-holes-barred speculation. Should be a good time.
2: We should mention that the basic elements of the Great Empire of the Dawn comes to Westeros theory, comes from an essay you wrote on Westeros last year. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah, that one was called Fingerprints of the Dawn. And as I mentioned before, I wrote it in collaboration with my pal Dern Godsgrief who had some of the major discoveries, like the gemstone eye connection. We were working on this stuff in March of last year, which was when my original theory came out, and when his uh, Daenerys is the Amethyst Empress Reborn theory came out. That Great Empire of the Dawn theory was actually my most popular post on Westeros ever. Since then, a few other people have sniffed out the same set of mysteries, because, as you saw, the clues are are right there. Uh, But I do have the honor of being the first that I know of, To find this mysterious Dawn Age Dragonlord civilization, which Elio actually speculated must exist years ago as a common ancestor of House Dane and Valyria.
2: Yeah, that's an important mention. Elio speculated on some of the stuff, not nearly in this level of detail, but the general idea of Proto Valyrians, he was on board with that a long time ago too. So, could be the Great Empire that he was thinking of too. He just wasn't specific.
3: Right, right. Like he put the connections of the purple eyes together and the swords and figured that there must be some common ancestor between house Dane and Valeria, but that's all we had. Cause we didn't have the world of ice and fire then. So now here we are with the new information, putting it all together. And hopefully uh, I'm curious to see his reaction when uh, I'm sure this will reach his ears at some point. So we'll have to see, but. Thanks
2: again to the people who helped us make this episode. It seems like every episode we make, or so there's another person involved or another somebody from the community comes in and joins us to help out or, or something like that. This is, oh, we're always making changes. We always have new people to thank. And I think that's a great thing. Again, I want to thank Martin Lewis for his contribution to the voice work for this episode. Again, check him out on Echoes of Ice and Fire on Facebook. He goes by the name The Reader, which is a, a very appropriate name. Thanks, a special thanks again to Michael Klarfeld from Claradox.de. This new ESOS map that you can see behind me is one of his creations. It's really awesome. We're going to get a different version of it made, we're going to get a larger one printed out eventually, one that's not as reflective so that it's better for camera. But we couldn't wait. We had to put this one up now so you could see it. It's awesome. It's perfect for this episode as well. So we love it. Check his site out. There's lots of great stuff like this. and he'll be making more things in the future too so you want to keep up with him and see what he's up to
3: alright man well it's been tons of fun collaborating and I'm sure we'll Mm -hmm. find another excuse to do it again in the future so that's it take care everyone one final note for my podcast listeners there's a video available of this entire episode on the History of Westeros YouTube channel which is easy to find by searching for History of Westeros on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time with a regular mythical astronomy episode, where we'll be continuing the Weirwood Compendium.
0: Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app.